Look, I'd consider myself a realist, all right? But in philosophical terms, I'm what's called a pessimist. Um, okay, what's that mean? It means I'm bad at parties. <laughs> This is bullshit. America's leading industry is still the manufacture, distribution, packaging, and marketing of bullshit. Hey, everyone. My name is Ian Savage. Welcome to the NBS podcast. I am the philosopher in the room, otherwise known as a person who makes everybody miserable. And Josh... As a humanist, don't you think it'd be better to uh, end human suffering by just letting everyone die? Hi, everybody. My name is Josh Simpson, and I am the... <laughs> I was just going to try to power through that and just ignore your question altogether. <laughs> um, but uh, I do... As if, as if I'm not your co-host. Yeah, as if not. Like, what, Could you imagine if we just had one episode where I just pretended like you didn't exist, and I just paused for long moments and then just continued my own thought and <laughs> never addressed one of your questions? That... <laughs> to be fair, that's sort of what I do. Uh, when I'm on a long monologue, <laughs> I feel like we both do that to each other, you know, and then there's moments when I start a talking bit, yeah. and you can feel it too. Like, I feel like even though I can't see you, cause you know, obviously with everything going on, we don't record in the same space anymore. Um, for those new listeners that have not heard us rant about that prior with all the different sound stuff we deal with. Oh, see, this is live stuff here. This is what it's like to, to record midday now because Ian's got a new schedule. We yeah. just hear dog barking. Um, protecting the well, house because yeah, he's in the middle of choking out a dog. <laughs> no, um, but my name is Josh Simpson. I'm the um, uh, the thespian in this conversation, uh, aka Boom Boom Pow Pow. And uh, Ian, to answer your question, as a humanist, uh, that's that's very interesting because I guess uh, there's always that underlying perception of how I believe uh, he, wh- what humanity is, and uh, the the optimistic, aka the antithesis. Of this episode, which is today we're going to be covering pessimism. Obviously, if you've seen the, the title screen is what Ian's kind of alluding to. Um, but I think it's important to acknowledge. Who knows? I could, uh, in the title, I could completely, uh, you know, uh, get rid of any references to pessimism. I could just say, like, the, the most joyful episode ever. <laughs> I you think know, that'll be the title. What's funny, too, is Ian's threatened me this. So to let our listeners in on a little secret, every time that I kind of <laughs> edit our episodes and, and post them up, I kind of set them as drafts where Ian can have time to go in and kind of create the episode name and, and description work and stuff like that. But I always name it something absurdly ridiculous, normally involving something that Ian has or has done. And Ian always threatens that one day, like I'm going to put one of these like titles up there and he's just going to, he's just going to release the episode. (laughs) He's just going to leave it. (laughs) Right. To be fair. I mean, you've, you've criticized my episode titles in the past and you know, in a, in a, in a constructive way, but uh, it's always it's always fun to to play with uh, those kind of ideas. normally it's your intro uh, so clips. Well, I feel like that's what I've been doing lately, but I feel like this is a good point to kind of transition before so. we start the episode. There is a couple <laughs> things that we we kind of want to cover. So I guess consider this kind of like a right. beginning episode mini housekeeping um, that we're just going to do right at the start of this. Yeah, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm sure uh, our dear listeners will notice is the um, f- recent changes in uh frequency in our episodes or changes to the format um as far as you know its quality or its um you know range in in topics and timeliness to how we put out the episodes basically you know long story short the pandemic destroyed everything 
Um, <laughs> and with us having to record virtually, you know, we've our our schedules have have been very strange. You know, like when it comes to uh, you know, because we used to sit in the same room, you know, the same office to record face to face, you know, and it sort of made it kind of easier to like, OK, on this day we're recording. So we have to make sure we're ready to go and we're going to do it every week. And and, you know, it was a lot more feasible. God, however many years have you been doing the podcast? I know. Yeah. Well, we have less on our plates. We can also kind of like, you know, you can, when right. you can see each other, it's it helps with not interrupting. You know what I mean? Because we get to kind of see when the other person wants to speak. And, you know, there, there was a lot of aspects to it. And, and, you know, the audio equipment that we we're using, we had better sound quality, of course, when we had the mics paired and in the same kind of system and, you know, obviously working from the same studio. Um, but you know, as you do, we kind of just, we still want to create content. So we've just been kind of slowly figuring out. So, you know, those of our season bullshitters, you know, thank you for bearing with us through this time of, of kind of trial and error. Right. Yeah. And, and obviously, um, you know, to address the, the, the widest and biggest elephant in the room, uh, you know, our schedules have completely been changed, um, not only through the pandemic, but then going back to work pretty much full time. It's as if everyone has forgotten there's a pandemic, uh, which is <laughs> frustrating. Um, my new job, I start very early in the mornings. And so I get off early in the afternoons and Josh is often, you know, either busy working or, or doing other things. And so our recording schedule as is, has already changed in that way. So going forward, we just want to make a few changes while still giving you the great content that we do in our, in our episodes. Um, you know, we sort of scaled back a little while ago to doing bi-monthly podcast episodes. We're still going to be doing that. We're still going to be giving you two episodes a month at at least, um, and 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 realistically, at at most, it'll just be the two episodes uh, per month. Um, but because we're doing that, we're going to be scaling back uh, Bullshit Boulevard. Um, it's not that we won't ever do that, and we won't release that for patrons. It's just when we have time to do that. It might not be something that we do every month it's more of something to think about as a bonus episode like hey you know like we didn't have anything to talk about or or you know josh and i got together to talk about something and we wanted to record it to put it out for all of you um so you know think of bullshit boulevard in that regard um you know it's sort of the same you know way that we phased out nbs news uh but then also you know our patrons and our um the way that we schedule ads in our well not real ads, but, you know, our, our ads for the patron, uh, Patreon in our episodes, you know, we we just want to make sure that everybody gets a good experience. And so I think we're going to be taking the ad away. Um, but our Patreon is still there. And something that we want to do for everyone is still um, is shout out our, our patrons and make sure that your support is heard and known because we really do appreciate your support. Um, even our freeloader listeners, um, we still find it fascinating that you're willing to download our episodes every, uh, every time. It's just kind of amazing that people listen to us. Right. You know, I'm um, just still weird and Ian, you're, you're at the risk of you getting a little ranty here. Um, you know, All I right, do want to, <laughs> I know we're almost at seven minutes, so I do want to pay attention to time because I do want people to hear the content we have. So just, it's obviously guys, you know, this we're, right. we're people. We understand two things. A, um, life is still a little bit busy as we're both working to kind of have more structured schedules to, to come out with better stuff in the future. You know, I know that I'm working full time doing master's programs. Ian's like literally trying to move into a different house. He just got a new job. Like he's, he's a, he's a parent. Like, you know, we're, we have all these things going on and, uh, we also understand that we're small. Like we're not, you know, for those of us that are listening to us, we get it. We know that we're not, <laughs> right. we know that we're not some, you know, this is not our day job. 
And not some big, big podcast just yet. That's we dream everybody's got to start somewhere. But, you know, while we acknowledge that we're on this little level, you know, we can take the time necessary to, to break. So with that being said, like our Patreons, of course, like it's amazing. And then even anybody else, like the fact that our website's up to 60 subscribers, that's fantastic. You know, that might seem small to some, but to us, it's huge because it's it's way more than zero. Um, so, uh, with that being said, uh, <laughs> yeah. let's start, let's start, let's start talking about pessimism. You know, obviously let's get the optimism out of the way for the podcast and let's start working on pessimism, um, and, <laughs> and, get, <laughs> right. and get this conversation started. So I guess, Ian, my question for you is obviously there's a lot of different things that you kind of were cautious about with, with bringing up, um, in, in terms of understanding pessimism and its connection to these other quote unquote isms, whether that be like a practice or philosophy or, you know, a way of thinking. And so I, I'm curious how you wanted to start. I don't know if you wanted to kind of go over some of these other isms that are similar and maybe kind of integrate and spend some time there just so we're all on the same page here before we start the convo. Yeah. So, you know, the thing about pessimism is, uh, it is often uh, compared to to various other uh, you know parallel philosophical um, ideas, um, whether it be cynicism or realism. Um, a lot of times, you know, there's a link with nihilism, uh, but then there's also skepticism thrown in there. Um, and I guess you know to to start off here, you know, we should talk about exactly what pessimism is, and then relate them to the others before we have our you know, more broad conversation and, and the consequences that, that stem from pessimism. So first of all, pessimism, um, as far as my understanding goes in, in studying philosophy, is that pessimism states that we are living in the worst world possible. Um, and there are various other ideas or definitions that you can take from that. Um, you know, Josh was doing some um, some reading beforehand, and he, it was – he he read to me the the most hilarious quote or or no he he was he was uh, just in his reading like he told me well Josh you say it and then and then I'll tell you why it's funny well I don't know if I said it the exact uh, well, way was, but I I've always you know before we get started I you know what Ian and I like to do we like to take you know, what we've experienced in our lives and kind of define things on our own and then figure out kind of what has been either academically defined or philosophically defined you know, these terms. And I, I think for me, pessimism has always been a mind frame. It's always been a viewpoint. And there's been certain things that I feel that it's a negative mind frame. But I, I when I was reading like the definition of pessimism, of course, I was at uh, went to Britannica again, because I just I don't know, I just I'm drawn to Britannica. I like the way that their layout is and how they have access to their sources. But it, the first thing it said was like, pessimism has been linked to a sense of hopelessness. And I just, I just thought that was, it was an interesting, it was intriguing. I've never just like <laughs> connected pessimism to the sense of hopelessness. And I just told Ian that like, I don't know, I, 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 I guess why am I surprised that I saw hopelessness? But <laughs> well, it was just, I mean, yeah, I mean, to like get in on the joke, like it, it was just funny the way that Josh put it to me. He's just like, isn't it interesting that pessimism has to do with hopelessness? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, uh, yeah, Josh, it is. And, uh, you know, the thing, the thing about, you know, that, that reading of it is that, like I said, pessimism, at least in my understanding, is that we live in, as far as possible worlds are concerned, we live in the worst one. As you know, as far as you know, the definition of pessimism goes, and the, the hopelessness comes in where it's just like, well, we're completely fucked, so there's nothing we can do about it. And this is where actually I want to bring in some of the other um, under other parallels because I think when people on the surface they hear pessimism, I think they're going to immediately go to more common understandings of, of pessimism, like 
the hopelessness factor, like, oh, it, it doesn't mean you know, nothing matters, or this is just the real view of the world. And uh, actually, there's a really great. See, uh, even right there, it, you're uh, doing weird because, like, a obviously hopelessness. I mean, maybe not obviously, but in my experience, then I guess hopelessness has not been attached to pessimism because that surprised me. And then, like, this is just the way it is, is more of a condition of realism, I believe. Um, which is, I know you're probably going to get there and cover it. So even so, even in your like, oh, this is manufactured, what most people know, there's still like a a bit of, I guess, cloudiness, if I want to say, you know, uncertainty. Sure. Yeah. No, there, there is something opaque about the, um, about the term and about its relation to other, um, like it's, you know, to other philosophical ideas. And, you know, I actually want to start with a, um, sort of a pop culture, uh, reference here. And so if anybody, now, granted, this is on, uh, it's an HBO show. So, you know, if you don't have HBO, then you probably haven't seen it. But if you know Matthew McConaughey, he was in this show with uh, Woody Harrelson called True Detective, at least the first season of the show on HBO. Uh, fantastic show, you know, sort of a noir, uh, gritty detective show set in Louisiana. And uh, Matthew McConaughey plays this really gritty detective who is a, who is a pessimist. And uh, when people see that show, I think they get a very skewed idea of what pessimism is because uh, uh, his character, Russell Cole is like this very moody downtrodden, like fuck the world. Like I don't want anything to do with this, but I'm good at my job. And so I'm going to do it. Another parallel might be uh, the David Fincher film seven with Morgan Freeman and, um, uh, and Brad Pitt, where Morgan Freeman is this very apathetic uh, detective in a, in a shitty kind of world. And, and, uh, it, it's when people see those um, expressions of pessimism, I think that's where the ideas of w- where realism and, and, and nihilism and hopelessness comes into people's perception of pessimism, because I think philosophically, it's really interesting when, when we get into it a little bit later, we'll talk about some of the consequences uh, that arise from pessimism and people's um let's just say uh, work on the world, you know, because I think a lot in a lot of ways with people with a pessimistic view actually try to improve the world um, in, in some interesting ways. But to, to start off here, first of all, Josh, do you have any questions? Because I know this is going to get like really uh, monologue here in a minute. (laughs) Like, well, I mean, I guess like any questions, you know, that you're, that's on the tip of your tongue, you know, like that you want addressed. No, I guess I don't know. I mean, it's more of the. I'm fascinated by this this concept of living in the worst possible world, you know. And and maybe that to me that seems extreme, you know. And 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 I'm just trying to like speak out of, of what I'm thinking is my my viewpoint without any sort of judging on like taking away a research and what we've learned by looking at these terms. Just me, kind of in my own natural intuition. I feel that, again, I just link back to this idea of pessimism being a mind frame of outcome, you know, or process of outcome and having a negative, like, uh, basically each situation that we're in, there is a, the projection of a negative outcome within those situations, you know, and I, and that's sure. why I have a, I have a hard time because to me, sometimes having a negative outcome is not necessarily, I can see its connection to hopelessness for sure. But I also think of hopelessness as like your, your classic symptoms of like the, 
you know, the, the depression kind of aspect of it and how that plays into pessimism. And so these are things that I feel like are probably going to be more conducive in our open conversation. So like for now, uh, let's kind of, you know, get more specific with these other isms as you're, as you've alluded to, and we'll just kind of go from there. And if anything jumps in, of course, I have no trouble with just interrupting you when I see fit. <laughs> right. Well, I think, uh, first of all, what you're, what you're describing, your sense of, of pessimism in regard to, uh, an, an attitude, I think, is it's you know it's very uh, typical glass half empty type of attitude. It's just like well, well, you know, it's not necessarily a person, you know, for example, in a depressive state. Well, that's a know, very famous idiom to describe pessimism right. too. It's important to point out that most people know that glass half full, glass half empty. Like that's you know your standard your standard kind of base level difference between optimism and pessimism. You know, and, and the antithesis of the two and how you view something. But then and again though that's that's that idiom is is predominantly focused on mind frame and and perception. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely. Um, I would agree that depending on your perspective of the world, it can shape how you um, perceive, you know, stimulus and, and and other other outside experiences that lead you to believe that there are only bad outcomes or there, there are a lot of bad outcomes depending on, on what you do in your life or, or the things that are happening around, around you. Um, and I think, uh, you know, to maybe start off here, we can talk about cynicism and realism. So we, we have done a cynicism and skepticism episode quite a while back. This was maybe what, two years ago. God, I don't even remember. Mm-hmm. No, maybe it was a year ago. And, um, you know, the, that episode, I, I would like to redo it as, at some point, um, or at least revisit those topics. Uh, but cynicism is sort of this view. Now we, t- you know, we in that episode we talked about the ancient uh, Greek point of view when it, in regards to cynicism. Basically, it you know it had a lot to do with living an ascetic lifestyle where you you know if, uh, Diogenes, this famous cynic, um, you know would just live in the streets barefoot. He'd live with, with dogs and was sort of this you know, early cosmopolitan, you know, and living, you know, living among the streets and like having a more worldly life closer to nature. But he was also like, fuck you, society like is bullshit. Um, And I don't want any part of it. When we think about cynicism today, it's very much, you know, there, there's a skeptical attitude about how um, things can reliably work in the world. You know, like think about you know, people's perception of government, for example, or like mine, you know, I most often than not, I am quite typically a, a cynic on very many things. I don't think the government works at all. Most of the time, um, you know, great example is like in my town right now, there's a lot of construction going on that I think is totally useless, <laughs> you know, but for some reason, the city has decided that it's, it's, it's better for the infrastructure in, in the city. You know, that's just one example of having a cynical outlook and one avenue of life. Um, there are various other things that you can attach uh, to cynicism, but no, no, riddle me this then riddle, riddle me this. So it, it, it appears sure. to me like, would you say, and, and maybe it's because I'm still stuck on this idea of hopelessness, but uh, would you say that a cynic, you know, I, I guess how do, how am I going to phrase this? In my brain, I'm thinking this. W- would you say that like there's a level of hopelessness that is either present or not present? What's like, kind of separates cynicism from pessimism? Like when you're cynical about certain stuff, do you still have like a hope that conversation can prevail and that like we would uh, come to a maybe a stronger sense of of either way of governing or, or not? Or do you feel that we're just I, I don't know? I guess where do you feel 
Like, why do you think that you are cynical as opposed to being pessimistic? Right. That's a good question. So I think if if I could call myself a cynic for the moment, I think that it would be more accurate to say that as a cynic, I can take a pessimistic view on certain avenues of life, but not as a whole. So like, you know, when it, in regards to hopelessness, I think a pessimist might say that like everything is fucked there's and there's nothing we can do about it uh, for the most part whereas a cynic like me might think about local government in a way they're like eh, that's just bullshit and it's never going to change whereas i can look at something else and like oh this is a really great avenue for change you know it just really depends i think on on what works in your in your life i mean like any personal philosophy but well that's um, fascinating because you you kind of you basically if i'm understanding you correctly you're talking about an overarching you know, pessimism is, is more of an overarching, like, negative response to everything, where you're just like, cynicism is basically maybe the hybrid of realism and pessimism when it comes to outcomes of, like, certain things you're acknowledging that you might be more pessimistic on, but other things, you know, for example, if you didn't have a certain level of hope, you know, for conversation or, or understanding, you wouldn't be doing this podcast, you know, because the, <laughs> the point that we're doing is is to have these conversations ourselves to kind of promote these things. You know, and and in hopes of 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 at least changing, you know, if not one listener, a couple listeners, or whoever is going to pay attention to this, you know. So I guess I'm just trying to flush out, you know, where that is because I I guess the counterfactual there is: Would you say that like pessimism doesn't exist in a singular like example? Like it's got to be an overarching negative view or nothing? Mm, I don't know. That, that's a good question. Cause I think you can certainly be, I, I, I think there are people out there who are very status quo pessimists and maybe to, to, to specify here, you know, you look at our politicians in, um, you know, at the, at the federal level and congressional level. And I think most of them are just happy to, to just keep their job and to do the bare minimum, what keeps them elected. I think in that regard, you might view those people as pessimistic. No, I, I don't think that's everybody in Congress or, or, or every Senator, um, you know, but like there is, there is something to say that their view on the world is just like, I'm just here to keep a job. Like I'm not here to change the world. And, Part of that might come with the naivety that says that they can't do anything about it when, in fact, they have a lot of power to do so. It's sort of like climate change, for example. I've, I've written about this, actually. I, I wrote this whole article about Blade Runner and uh, climate pessimism and how the – you know. The, Blade Runner, one of the aspects um, to that world is its view of the future and how we do nothing to stop climate change. And I think a lot of people in power and especially large corporations are perfectly fine with just letting the climate worsen and just adapting to it. And I think that's something to, to say that like, well, there's nothing we can do about it. So, and that, that doesn't necessarily reflect a depressive attitude, but it does reflect a hopelessness there. And I think that bleeds into many aspects of, of our life that is, I think, different than cynicism, because I think cynicism takes a very, um, it's almost like having a negative attitude on life, um, but you're not applying a pessimistic outlook to every avenue, whereas pessimists can have a, a a hopeless attitude towards the world and 
and necessarily be fine with how it's working at the same time. Does that make sense? Am I making I sense? No, a little bit. I guess, well, because I was being a little bit nitpicky too, because we're talking about pessimism. So it's like the 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 philosophy yeah. of it is is overarching. But like you said, you can be pessimistic, which is like that's would be an example of the one off viewpoints of the of of pulling from pessimistic mind frame. So that's the clarifying mind. But I think what you're trying to say is i mean i don't know i guess correct me if i'm wrong here but you you're almost equating it to you know when you look at cynicism there's still this this level of kind of interpretation that's not kind of an overarching everything's going to fail it's it's more of just you might tend to to lean towards the more negative outcomes not saying that you're always going to default to those negative outcomes sure yeah and maybe to um to really hone in exactly what we mean by pessimism, we can sort of look at the opposite end of the spectrum as, and when it comes to uh, the, um, the more optimistic side. And I think a great example are sort of the, you know, the techno futurist optimists out there in the world. So I think you and I, Josh, we were listening to the same uh, podcast episode of Sam Harris recently, where he had on uh, these three other guests was it no? Was it three or was it two other guests? I can't remember. It was three. Um, it three. was three. Yeah, and they were talking about. Um, oh no! Actually, I'm think I'm thinking about the the podcast previous to that where they're talking about uh, uh, the it was the people with changing food and the way that we eat meat and and how it affects the climate. Do you remember that? Did you listen to that one? I don't. Oh yeah, no the the food climate and pandemic risk. I have not listened to that one yet. Okay. So anyway, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, give a whole synopsis of that episode, but you know, the guests they were having on worked for this, um, nonprofit, uh, like basically yeah, Bruce Frederick food. and Liz skips from good food Institute about the, good food about Institute. the ways. Yeah. yeah. It was where they're from. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, they were basically talking to like the way that we can, uh, have alternative meats and protein in order to stop, uh, climate change and, and to, um, use technology to, to get us, um, to this place, you know, somewhere in the future, wherever, wherever it is, where we don't have to worry about climate change and, and yet still, um, have our, you know, quasi desired diets. And one of the things it got me thinking of is like their optimistic view of the world by way of technology, these technological optimists, as I call them, they are very much in line with like, there is suffering in the world. Uh, the world that is in a bad shape and it could be worse, but there are things that we can go about it to, to, to change it. That is hopeful, right? Like their view on technology and, and how it can change the meat industry, for example, because I mean, it's very true that like methane produced from cattle, for example, have the largest impact on climate change more than petroleum um, and more than other um human cause, uh, uh, technologies that, that drive climate change further. And so their view of the world is like, Hey, we've got this great thing ca called technology. You know, we can be pretty hopeful and we can set down some goals, uh, to meet and use technology to, 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 to meet them. And I think when you compare that to the view, you know, that pessimism has of the world basically states that this, the, the state of the world that we're in it's either the worst it could be or it can only get worse. And I think that you have to, I mean, we'll get into this, but you know, it's has to do with our relationship to suffering. It has to do with whether or not we actually can do anything about the world. And, um, 
I, I'm feeling I'm a bit ranty here, but you know, basically when I think of pessimism, you know, to go back to the original definition that I've gave that we live in the world worst of possible worlds, it, to me, it is just a, it is an attitude. Like you said, you know, I you, linking back to the idiom of glass half empty, it is an attitude, but it is also bringing in that hopelessness factor again, you know, to, to make this, you know, concrete here is that there's no amount of technology. There's no amount of, of work that humans can do to make life any better uh, than it already is. And I, I, I don't know, like, am, am I, do you think I'm meeting your understanding here? <laughs> I, 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 no, I, like, I, I know I was letting so you, much, I, I, so I'm, much. I know I'm letting <laughs> you go. Cause I'm, I'm just in the, I'm in think mode right now, you know, and, and mainly That's because good. I'm trying to think about this too, because I, of course I want to talk about suffering because I have an interesting relationship with suffering yeah. and what I view the purpose of it is, and I keep coming back to certain terms like perception and the evaluation of outcomes or, or process leading to these outcomes or pathways, as I like to to acknowledge. And and certain ideas of, of you know, for example, what is the classic pessimistic thing where it's like you, you're always expecting the worst, uh-huh. you know, you know, and I feel that there's a difference there. We're trying to break it down because when I think of realism where it's just, you know, the difference between you know, realism is, is people are just like, no, these are things that happen that like we may not have direct change over and you just have to do the best we can and accept that and move forward. And so there's even me taking my own optimistic lens and splashing a little bit of optimism in how I interpret realism, you know? And so, uh, what fascinates me is I, I look at this idea of suffering and, and people that acknowledge the worst possible outcome. And so you, you say that if we're going to suffer, you know, that's all we're going to have. And I can see this is where it's going to lead us down to certain topics, which later on the episode, when we talked about when we talk about antinatalism, that's a big part of it, you know, but for, for a pessimistic viewpoint, I think that, you know, the idea of suffering and what it means is fascinating to, to what is that? You know, I, I, I guess I'm curious as who has the answers of what necessary is classified as a negative outcome, you know, and is it just something that's generic or is it something that, you know, there, is there an assumption happening here where they're just assuming that a negative outcome is going to happen or are they not surprised when a negative outcome does happen? You know, these are all certain things that I'm trying to wrap my head around when I think about what it means to be like a pessimistic person or to, to live in a world of pessimism. And, you know, I guess, I guess the question is, is how do you continue on? Like, I almost (laughs) would argue that, no, I'm, I'm living. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, not, not just that, just in all aspects of it. Cause if you, if you legitimately believe that we're around in the worst times, there's no, that everything bad that's going to happen is going to happen. Like, and, and there's no changing it. You know, then what are you doing? Um, you know, and, and I don't mean that in like a right. negative way. I just mean that. And I'm genuinely curious as to what you do. And this is why I feel that maybe there's certain ways of handling that. So like a, an idea that I just have now is like, what if cynicism was almost birthed from that? Like, what if like, like you have true pessimists who really don't believe that anything's going So the only way that you can find meaning in a world that you believe is never going to amount to anything is by being cynical, by viewing it. You know, maybe it's like a self-protection thing to where like you start and then over time, cynicism has developed into its own thing where, you know, it's it's kind of similar and the birth of cynicism, I think pessimism is required, but it's its own thing now and you do not, you no longer need to be pessimist to be cynical. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I do think that, you know, in in contemporary times and in, and in more uh, pre-modern times, pessimism certainly co-opted 
uh, cynicism, you know, quite, uh, you know, it, it, it integrated it into its, um, overall encompassing. Right, that's a fair ism. point. That's a fair uh, point is to is, is to make sure that I classify modern because as you said, you know, with the with the Greek interpretation, it's like being closer to nature, I think is what you said. That's what they kind of right. their mentality was. So yeah, obviously it's a little bit different than how we understand it modern wise. So yes, you're right. I guess I'm more speaking but, in, a, in the modern But it, it's it's still useful to talk about because um I think you know, what you do with with that with that worldview right a, a you know pessimistic worldview where our our life is only suffering um I, you know i i guess there are a couple things here first of all i mean we do need to uh reevaluate our relationship with suffering um because i, I think schopenhauer um arthur schopenhauer a philosopher 18 uh, 19th century philosopher talked about this quite a bit in that and he was actually um uh, quite aligned with uh, the Buddhist point of view that life is suffering uh, and that in order to uh, in- achieve true, uh, true happiness or true enlightenment and whatever you have to, you have to break away from all bodily um, and lifely attachments. You, you know, like you have to basically like give yourself over to, nothing in a lot of ways that's it's a bit complicated you know we're not here to talk about buddhism but uh schopenhauer you know in case it is anybody uh anybody isn't aware of his work uh, nietzsche was uh, largely inspired by his early work um and schopenhauer was a was a pessimist he viewed that we lived in the world he, he viewed that we lived in the worst possible world and you know he was very much concerned with human suffering in the way that like he even had some ethics uh, come out of it. Uh, but suffering for him was, and I'm not entirely familiar with all the Schopenhauer's work. So take what I say with a grain of salt, but suffering is a very much integral part of life that we can't escape suffering. And I think that in a way that I, I agree with him quite a bit, like, you know, Josh, you talk about in, you know, in your, in your book, you know, there's, uh, there is unnecessary suffering. And then I've talked about before that there is necessary suffering in the world. And I think that those, those two ideas live on, you know, either side of a coin where there is just suffering in the world, but we can view the suffering in very different ways. And we can almost use it to our advantage where, there is some suffering in the world that we can just have a different look, you know, different view on it. Like we can change our, our perspective and say like, you know what, I'm not going to let that suffering bother me. But then there's, you know, very real suffering in the world, like famine and war and, um, you know, and climate, the, you know, the impacts of climate change that you just, you can't really escape. I mean, you can still change your perspective on, on how you deal with that suffering, but the suffering is, is there nonetheless. The second thing that I want to talk about here is, you know, what you propose is how do we move forward with that? And Schopenhauer, again, the, the ethics that came out of his, his pessimistic, pessimistic worldview was actually an altruistic one. First of all, he was very uh, fond of animals. He thought that animals were, you know, had a soul and they were very much um, attuned to human life, uh, especially dogs. I mean, he was a big dog person. And he thought that because of the, you know, the, vast amounts of suffering in the world that we should actually do everything in our power uh, to try and help those uh, people who are, who are suffering. Now he wasn't like somebody who's going to give to charity a whole bunch. And he was actually quite the misogynist as well. He famously pushed down a pregnant woman uh, down a flight of stairs. Um, 
but Jesus you know, Chris. <laughs> no, but no, no. I kind of want to stop you for a second. There, there, for there's sure. a, there's yeah. certain avenues that I kind of thought. So first of all, I think this is interesting about suffering being an integral part of life. The first thing I thought about was childbirth, like the amount of suffering that a, that the that the right. mother would go through to birth a child. Like so, like literally, the the in order to bring another life into this world, you have to experience a level of suffering. Um, you know, and so th- there's that aspect of it. First of all, that we can bring into. Second of all. There's this interesting idea of like, you know, like you, you talked about the context of suffering and whether that be suffering induced outside of your control or suffering within your control. Cause you know, uh, about perception of mind frame, cause this is the one thing you haven't really talked about is I keep bringing up the terms outcome, you know, and, or situation outcomes or pathways to these outcomes. And I haven't really, you haven't really acknowledged or said anything along those lines about the viewpoints, because, you know, I think that the outcome is a prime example. Cause take a, you know, I think Sam Harris has talked about this too, like working out at the gym. You are technically, on a certain right, putting your body through suffering, in a sense. Sure. You know, you're you're rigorously, you know, you're ex- you, you, in order to grow muscles, they rip, and then they 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 have scar tissue that heals, and then you have certain like acids that get secreted in your body that leads to fatigue and you know muscle soreness, and th- there's a lot of aspects of like you know, and I've I've been to the gym a few times with the body. Like I would argue that there's a level of suffering that one goes through when you do rigorous workouts. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of the way that we view the positive aspects of that or, or the twist that we get via our perception of what we're doing, we actually get a high or a pleasure out of that type of suffering, um, you know, as opposed to other sufferings. And so that's why I think context is important. And this is where I feel I keep going back to this, but how I differentiate these, these different isms of, of, of of pessimism or realism or, or cynicism, it all has to do with kind of a, a, a perception or a, how you viewpoint or your mind frame, or your lens or whatever you want to call it of these different outcomes, you know, via outcomes that don't affect you directly, like suffering that you see or via suffering that you experience directly. Yeah. Well, a couple of things there. Um, you know, first of all, you know, there's this aphorism that uh, that uh, Nietzsche said, you know, about trees. In order for a tree to become strong and tall, uh, and and old, and bear fruit, and and you know, have a long lasting effect on it on this its surrounding environment, it has to go through tremendous amounts of you know, from the tree's perspective, a you know, a lot of suffering. Right? There has to be like it has to be able to take you know huge forces of wind and rain and possibly earthquakes and other, other, you know, natural events or, or, or man-made events that, that might cause seasonal changes. Right. Yeah. That, that might cause the tree to fall down, but every time it doesn't, it is strengthened because of those, uh, because of the, the, endurance you know the the things that the tree has endured um and so <laughs> well, and that, of course that's classic nietzsche what doesn't kill you makes you stronger right, right? <laughs> precisely um you know so in that regard you know there that is a very different look at uh, uh, at how suffering uh can take you know can have an effect on us but you know you're you're, you're talking about outcomes and you know what comes to my mind here is actually taking pleasure in the suffering and that to me <laughs> that to me is a little disturbing uh you know because i this is where i, I very much differ from you know the pessimistic point of view and and suffering and, and it being good for you know because i don't think suffering is that's interesting would you define that not to cut you off but would you that's fascinating would you would you say that that is like your idea of like part of cynicism is almost like 
noticing certain aspects of suffering and maybe like noticing that it can't change and almost having, uh, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, a slight joyous <laughs> interpretation in some context. Like, is, would you would you argue that's this, like individual to you or would you argue that that's a part of cynicism? Well, are you – let me just ask a clarifying question to you. Are you asking that like as a cynic or from the point of view of a cynic, could that person view suffering as a pleasurable thing in a in a negative regard? Is that what, is that what you're asking me? Or- no, I'm saying that you made, a, you made an offhand comment that like obviously when you critique the world, like sometimes when you, when, when you say cynical as in like there's a lot of things that we discuss – that you just have an approach that, you know, nothing's really going to change. Um, you know, there's no way to improve, I guess, is a better way. And and there's certain regards where, depending on that, you might get, and for lack of a better term, like we said, like a pleasure out of, out, out of like certain levels of, of suffering that's not going to change, especially if it's not directly involving you. Um, that's interesting. And so I would argue... Oh, go ahead. You know, I, I, was, I mean, like, I didn't, I didn't really think of it in that way. I, I suppose I do derive some pleasure in, uh, in being cynical uh, towards the world. Uh, but, but I think the other part, the other part here is, is too, is that like I find myself being cynical when I see people deriving a type of strange pleasure out of their suffering. You know, it's also similar to like the way that Stoics um, view suffering. Uh, like yourself, <laughs> who who thinks that uh, you know <laughs> suffering is no big deal, um, and that like give me more, please. You know, like I just like okay, that's I, not <laughs> that is not even close. That is no, I, no, no, no. Okay, now you're just going to confuse the listeners. Essentially, like, and then again, I can't change certain situations. I mean, you talked about this, like the book that I'm working on, you know, and then of course this is what my master's degree is for. So hopefully, in like the next fucking ten years or something, like that could become a reality. <laughs> but this this idea. Like you said, this idea of unnecessary. Well, yeah, what I'm saying, this idea of unnecessary suffering just implies that there is like necessary suffering. And, and I I guess what I mean, and I guess my kind of view of that is uh, real quick. It's like, I think that we have our own experiences and we learn through compare and contrasting. You know, it's like, you know, I often make the joke that like, you you know, listening to a shitty song helps you appreciate music that you do care for, you know, or like the more, you know, the more data sure. that you receive them, you know, the more movies that you watch, you know, and the, the more you're exposed to either good films, mediocre films, great films, you know, you start to catalog and you, you use your own experiences, you compare and contrast what you've seen and you create this list of what you prefer, you know, or what you think is better above, above all. And so I almost argue that suffering is similar where, you know, we always promote this idea of wanting to be happy or fulfillment or, you know, trying to, 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 if we're given consciousness, right, shouldn't we have like the best ride possible? You know, and I told this to, you know, my roommate the other day, I was like, you know, I think suffering is a part of this things that I've, I'm experiencing it. And just the fact that we get to experience and know that we're feeling something is great. And like, yes, there's going to be two sides to that coin, but I, I'm just acknowledging that through comparing and contrast, my own suffering has helped me categorize and identify what I define as my own sense of fulfillment. And I'm not confused in that. So it's almost a, you have to experience one to understand the other, and it gives you a sense of balance to create your own meaning. So then, okay, let me ask you this then, as far as far as outcomes are concerned, you, you know, you mentioned that, uh, 
that you know life you know should have some type of you you should enjoy the ride and in, in, at some points do you think that as an optimist i mean you know if you really do identify as an optimist do you think that that people do deserve some type of uh fulfillment or enjoyment in their life like do you think they deserve it i feel that I, you know yeah in a sense i do i feel that we and again, I, I do thought experiments. And most people say, realistically, uh, like, yes, optimism is a part of my my kind of outlook of the world. But I would say that I'm an idealist, for sure. Um, you know, because... Yeah. <laughs> In case that wasn't known to anyone. <laughs> I know. Beforehand. But I, I know what you're alluding to is, I guess what I'm saying is, is that we had, you know, we create meanings to everything like our words like we're the ones that created words that that mean stuff like you know for example the the what is that the perfect the memory the uh can't remember if he was a scientist or for his life was mesmer and that's where like that's where mesmerize comes from you know and like so you see like different stuff or even in acting which is interesting there's a there's a term called beat um, and it, and it stands for thought shift, you know, when you, when you're reading material and, and the actor is like, or you, you have to look at the monologue and you're like, okay, well, this person's like changing direction. So you, you mark a beat to, to let yourself know, like, this is a thought shift. And I found out that that word only existed because it was an accent where the lady was, uh, back in the day was coaching monologues and she was telling her students to take a little bit, just take a little bit. And like figure it out, but because of her action, she went just take a little beat, just take a little beat, huh. um, and because of that, that's where the entire word beat came from in the acting thing, and it's a definition that's been passed down. And so, like, you know, I just all these different things that we have created based on that, I just would argue that wouldn't it be better to understand that we all are conscious and why not do our best to constantly set up a system where everybody or at least the most amount of people can kind of get to that sense of, of fulfillment because, you know, you even said this before, I, it sounds really first world for me to be like, you know, well, God, you, you have consciousness. So you might as well enjoy the ride. Now that's kind of, you know, that's kind of counterintuitive if you're born in a certain part of, you know, a oppressed culture. Like for example, let's take the people that were, that were killed in, in, um, in North Korea because they were, they were found with, with like music and, and entertainment movies from South Korea. Oh, right. Yeah. Like, you know, so like PPO for so for right, right, yeah. So these things where it's like you know, this is where this idea of suffering it, it kind of really plays an important part, and this is where my optimism come in because I like to think that hopefully, you know, we can continue to move forward collectively as a as 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 you know humanity in a whole, and try to find ways to better that. But you know. Who knows? Whatever happens after my lifetime is none of my concern anymore. <laughs> <You'll be dead. laughs> well, see, yeah, this is this is definitely uh, where where you and I differ, and and you know we can maybe uh, talk about it for uh, another little bit and then take a break. But uh, see, I, I am a very different. Um, I mean, not entirely different, but I. I guess this is something I, sh- I should preface here is that I talked about this a little bit in a in a paper I wrote called. Um, uh, nihilism in our present moment, I, I sort of developed this concept a little bit. And uh, I think Josh even interviewed me a little bit on it on our episode number 50, where we talked to Orlando and we talked about nihilism and black nihilism. Um, and so I developed this concept called grand indifference. It's something that's been sort of ongoing in my mind uh, over the past few years, you know, about the world and to, to, to be brief. <laughs> basically i think that the world the universe 
its primary characteristic is is the grand indifference and and to define that specifically it is an indifference that is so beyond us that there's obviously nothing we can do about it it's sort of this cosmic almost view of of the world is that like the world just is and we are a part of it much like the trees and the rocks and the stars and and the viruses and you know in the world like the world just is and we just we we are a part of it and that comes with a a necessary aspect where living beings will suffer because there are just you know like stars explode you know asteroids crash into planets and that those things just happen and necessarily living things will experience immense suffering from that and so my take from that is that because you have life i think you should go out and experience it i it's not necessarily a you deserve to to have some type of happiness or flourishing but you have life so go experience it like life can be really interesting there can also be a lot of shitty things in it but life is inherently interesting and you can find meaning in it and you can do interesting things. You can fuck interesting people. You can, you know, talk. You Good know, Lord. To I'm just saying like <laughs> there are so many things in life. No, right? I know. There are almost an innocent I just, out, of, out, of, out of all the descriptions. I didn't, I didn't figure you could, I'm you just would saying, go there. Of course I'm you just saying go there. But, like when you, no, when you're, you're not... born, you, you can fuck people. It's great. I mean, not right away. Oh my God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, you know what you sound like? You say, you remind me of awful, like your fucking dry humor. Uh, so, but the, you were kind of remind me of, you kind of remind me of like an optimum, an optimistic nihilist where you're like, you know, sure. I, you, you understand that, 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 that the world has really no meaning, you know, and like the great nothingness is like, there's no real meaning. So you actually kind of get to explore and have fun and create your own, um, you know, if you're in a position to do so. And I, I, I think for me, I, I kind of said, I wouldn't consider myself an optimistic nihilist, but I, I, I do think that, you know, life in general is chaotic. You know, the nature of what we do is chaotic. There's no real rhyme or reason, I think. You know, we try to, this is kind of, you know, not to, we talk about religion often, but the, the, the only thing I want to hone in here on religion is that religion, its sole purpose, you know, in whatever kind of belief you have is is basically trying to say that, no, 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 it may feel like chaos, but it's actually, you know, orderful and there's actually morality behind it. And it's actually this and this and this. And, and don't get me wrong, like there's certain aspects of morality that I enjoy, but realistically, I think that like, is there a reason why somebody who would potentially do all the right things, like die young in a car wreck, while somebody who does all the bad things makes a lot of money and lives to their 90? You know what I mean? There's no real, like it's situational based where we happen to be in certain places or certain times. And it's the chaos of this unknown that we're trying to find meaning to. And so for me, it's not organizing the chaos that I'm finding meaning. It's just my own personal thread of my perceptions, my outcomes, my understandings and, and what meaning I facilitate to them and, and trying to do my best to, to, this is where I, I told you know, the concept of personal optimism, you know, and maybe we can even double back on that. And like, there's a set, you know, the counter part of that is the, you know, personal pessimism of like, you know, you can almost, I think for me, I think personal pessimism is like defensive nature where like, you know, if I'm, if I'm afraid of being hurt, then I'm just going to be rude and negative and defensive of everything because I'm protected. You know, that would, to me, comes off as a sort of personal pessimistic viewpoint. Yeah. Is, you know. No, yeah, I think, I think you're right on that note, that pessimism, in a way, it's almost like a um, reflexive uh, and, and risk averse 
set of measures that you take. They're like, I don't, I don't want to experience suffering in, in the worst possible ways. So I'm just going to have kind of what we talked about before. Our expectations are super low. So that way, if I'm ever disappointed or if I ever find myself in a situation where I do find suffering, it's like, ha, ah, I knew it would be this way. You know, it's not like the, it's not like the situation where, you know, you have something shitty to you. Like maybe you're in a car wreck or something like that. And, you know, it could be a minor fender bender. And the person, you know, didn't see you were in the intersection and they came and hit you. You know, they sort of sideswiped you, but, you know, but everyone's fine. You know, you can sort of have the avenue, you know, have the attitude where like, fuck, like this is God, this is the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to me. Or you could take a more optimistic, more reasoned approach. Like there are worse things that could happen. You know, I could have been killed. This person could have been killed. It could have been, you know, way worse. And I think you feel like it's easier to do looking down on the child and not like, you know, for your son, like, let's say this, you, you know, as somebody who, who's seeing your son kind of experience the world for the first time, you know, there's probably something that would have happened that he takes very seriously and gets very upset about. And even though you understand that he's a child, like there's almost a part of you that's like, wow, like in the grand scheme of things, like what he is, what he's upset about doesn't fucking matter. You know, and, and, and like a part of your brain can acknowledge that in its own right. And and would that help you? Because I feel that we kind of we it's easier for us to look at, at, at younger, younger people, either whether they be teenagers or kids and have that same feeling. But then when we think about our own lives, we're like, no, 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 that that this something. No, no. For me, that is, you know, and then you're like, actually, it's the, the same principles kind of apply. Where like, you know, any situation that you can go through, there's probably somebody somewhere that's that's having a higher level of of suffering or experience that to them, what you're doing, it just seems minuscule, you know. Right. Well, I think that's sort of our job, our jobs as parents, right, is to put a little bit more perspective uh, to give children more perspective on the world as as teachers and as guardians and as um, as custodians over them. Um you know, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit in the second half when we talk about antinatalism sure. and, and childhood. Um, I think that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Yeah, yeah. we could save that but, for that. But something, but something I will say, though, is like I heard this really great uh, – this other podcast episode from Very Bad, Very Bad Wizards podcast. We've talked about them before on the podcast. God, it's great. been so it's long like, since I've listened to them. I'm not going to lie. I have not listened to them in quite you, some time. you got to listen to them more often. They're, they're fucking gold, I swear. Like they, they – produce some amazing podcasts but they they put out one this is maybe a few months ago where in their opening segment they talked about this article whereas it was a very pessimistic pessimistic article about childhood and it was saying something along the lines of childhood is bad for children <laughs> and it's very like this confusing like um what do you what are you talking about and it basically you know the argument was made is that children experience all types of of suffering and and trauma in the world that that might you know hurt them as an adult you know that they take with them through the years and it's sort of like this obvious like dude like that's so dumb like you have to experience childhood and all of its all of its unpleasantries in order to become an adult and i think you know what you're talking about earlier and what i was mentioning about how as a parent you know th- they children experience literally the worst suffering in their lives because they don't know how bad it can get. And I know that sounds, that sounds awful. No, Ian, no, 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 Ian, this, no, Ian, this, this, this proves my, this is exactly what I mean when I talk about comparing and contrasting our experiences. Right. 
They don't know anything different. No, like they until don't. they experience something. And that's why, like, you know, for those that know, like when that's why when I write about in that book, I'm like, look, yes, did I want you know my father to die when I was sixteen? No. Right. You know, was there a lot of suffering attached to that? Yes. But for the rest of my life, because it was so drastic of suffering and I had that comparison, everything else seemed minuscule, you know, in yeah. comparison. And I yeah. almost feel better off for that in its own right because I cannot change what happened, but I can at least change my perception of understanding that now when I got a flat tire at 20, you know, because of what I happened when I was 16, like that flat tire was not a big deal. You know, sure. things are not as effective, I guess. As, life, you know, life has a, has a, it does a pretty good job of getting you, of giving you perspective. And I think like I was mentioning as a, as a parent and when you're, when your child is experiencing pain or misery, you know, you can, you can tell them it's like, dude, kid, this ain't that bad. Like you can get over it. And again, I think that's part of our jobs here is that, uh, you know, when a child is sad, I mean, my son, like he cries over just the, like the smallest things. It's like, dude, you're fine. Get up. And, you know, like, and, and the thing is, is like, he's better for, for that. I mean, back, you know, when he was first learning how to walk and he was running around, like he would fall and it would hurt and he would get bruises and scrapes and he would cry. And it's like, Hey dude, like, are you, co- are you okay? You know, we would always check in with him, you know, like, Hey, like, are you good? And after a while it got to this point where like, if he falls, like, just let him fall and he'll get back up. You know, like it's he's experienced it several times over and he can just stand up. It's like, oh, yeah, that I've had that's happened to me. I'm fine. You know, just get up and keep running. You know, I mean, you still periodically check in with them. You know, like my son is always good with like, hey, you good. And he's like, "Uh uh-huh. And just gives me the thumbs up. And I'm like, all right. Hands off. (laughs) But I feel like though, but it's curious though, because you can say life can teach you perspective. And this is what I'm actually, this is where my kind of optimism comes in. And this is where I kind of differentiate pessimism and optimism, because I think pessimistically, there are people that never see that they, they don't acknowledge the, the perception that they're learning that, you know, they're not spending the time to maybe compare these experiences and, and, and kind of piece together that like, oh yeah, this was, you know, this was bad or the, or this was like quite a bit of suffering. And it actually wasn't quite as comparable to the other suffering that I thought was bad because I didn't know any different, you know, yeah. or maybe like, you know, oh, this is something that I went through. You know, a pessimist would go through something negative and be like, yep, this is always going to happen. I fucking knew it. Like, you know, nothing's <laughs> going to be better. And it, it almost solidifies their viewpoint while, you know, somebody else. That, and that's why I think this is why I'm so keen on this on these isms you know pessimism particularly being a matter of of mind frame and how you view certain situations towards yourself you know if we're if i'm coming from a cultural standpoint i you know the idiosyncrasy idiosyncrasy of like of our lives you know each person has something that they're own uniquely experiencing you know that is where those outcomes differ and i feel that you know my own personal optimism is just acknowledging that that is that can happen you can be trapped into this negative viewpoint and and why not try to to compare these and 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 strengthen cuz look like you said life is you know go live it because you said life is full of suffering but i have seen moments of people that have laughed you know that have that have listening to things that moved them that have that have had amazing experiences and great times you know and like what is going on with that so i guess i guess for me and uh we i know i want to take a break here soon but do you think that even these pessimistic people like are are being kind of lying to themselves because i would argue that at least at one point you know they're a pessimistic person had to at least have laughed 
or 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 experienced some aspect of a positive emotion. Of course, I mean that's that's just human to do so, but I think it it really just depends on the the type of experiences that they've had and the the guidance or lack thereof that they've been given through life. You know, a great example is if I mean I'm just going to use this because it's it's you know, the experiences are close to me, you know, but if, if a parent were, were to lose a child in like a tragic accident, um, that is obviously a really devastating, you know, thing that could happen to someone's life. And that might totally change your outlook on life. I mean, actually a, another a great example is let's say me, who is a, uh, I, I like guns. I don't love them, but I like them a lot. Um, it'd be weird to say that I love guns, but <laughs> um, I was gonna say that was an yeah. interesting, that was an interesting clarification. Yeah. It almost feels like you're signaling. <laughs> well, I, I'm <laughs> like, just saying, like, I like I guns. Don't I don't love them. I've, <laughs> I've never, I've never, I've never rubbed one up against me and been like, right. this feels great. Like <laughs> yeah. I've never, I, li- I, I like shooting guns. I think they're great. Uh, they're, they're obviously a tool for destruction. And if, for example, because of me, a gun owner and someone who likes to, to shoot and, and, uh, you know, go fire off, you know, and have a great time target practice. If for some reason my child was, you know, this is a, you know, if this is triggering anybody, just be prepared. Uh, you know, but if if for some reason my child was gunned down in like a school shooting, I might, and this is me not knowing because I haven't experienced it. I might totally change my perspective on gun ownership. It might totally reverse engineer how I think about the use of guns uh, in America and in the world and in my own life. I just don't know. Um, and if, and the I thing mean, is, that's is, fair. Like to get, to get personal here, yeah. you know, my father, you know, my father used a 22 pistol um, when he took his own life and that completely changed the way that my mom viewed weapons too. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. You know, the, the immediately after that, we got rid of all of the ones in the house. And, you know, at that point in time, that experience taught her that, like, they are more problematic, you know, than, than they are helpful. And, you know, and she also, too, like, you go down that rabbit hole, too, when you find out certain statistics of how many, you know, how more likely it is for people to use their own guns on themselves uh, right. rather than using them for protection and, you know, certain things that you start to look at certain statistics. And so, you know, I, I don't think that you are wrong at all by thinking that like, you know, you, like you said, you don't know because like another phrase my mom says is you, you don't know what you're going to do in a fire until you actually feel the heat, you yeah. know? Um, yeah. So really I don't. get that, but I, I, it's very, very, yeah. What you're saying like make, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so in that regard, you know, you don't know what experiences the effect that they will have on you. On top of that, um, you have to look at how guidance prepares you for those experiences and guides you along them. I mean, so if someone is going through a deep depression, you know, the, the common, uh, the common thing to fix well i shouldn't say fix depression but the common thing to to deal with depression is like possibly you know take some medication that might help get you back on balance you know like you know as far as chemically goes or you know see something like a therapist or or counselor to, to speak to to help uh you better understand your feelings and and your experiences you know it's it's all about guidance it's why many people after a tremendous loss or or some other traumatic experience go to religion, you know, because like there is a lot of meaning that people find in the community and the metaphysical explanation of the world uh, that religion has to offer. So it really just depends on the guidance as well and how to deal with your experiences. And 
I don't remember exactly what we were ta- what we were talking about, but I think you know. No, no, I, I feel like you're, we're getting we're you you you're bringing up good yeah. points. Why don't we yeah. do this then? So let's take a break. I feel like it's probably a good point to take yeah. a quick break. I agree. Um, and again, uh, <laughs> we're just gonna like we'll come back and then I think what we'll do is you know we'll get back on the pessimism train. Not like we've lofted, but we'll, I, I kind of really am interested in exploring this concept of childhood and maybe kind of exploring some pessimistic connections to antinatalism. I think that's, that's, that's a good place to at least start for the second half. Yeah, definitely. We'll, um, we'll take a break and and we'll start there and and we'll see how depressed we can get by the end of the episode. All right. right. See you guys in the set. Bye. Hey everyone. Welcome back from the break. Uh, Josh, are you sufficiently depressed yet? Well, Ian, it's funny that you say that because you always give me shit for being an optimist. So no, if anything, I almost feel better. I almost feel like we're going to get such a good grasp of pessimism that I'm going to be able to just convert pessimists left and right. (laughs) Well, uh, I guess I haven't sufficiently done my job yet then because uh, it's time to get depressed. That's fair. Also too, like I didn't, I didn't like that word. I don't like the word convert. Like maybe Convert. from a PDF to a Word document, but like there's other <laughs> words like that. <laughs> maybe that's the like, only I'm time gonna, that I'm going to convert you to Islam right now on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe because it's just a religious term, but I was like, I'm going to convert pessimist to optimist. Even that word just seemed silly, even though it's probably a positive thing. But but no, I I guess I just I'm just still curious because I still feel like I'm a little bit confused, to be honest, Ian. And what I'm what I'm really confused about is this this kind of breakdown you know between cynicism and pessimism and and, and the viewpoint of of you know the, I guess what I've been trying to get you to tell me is as somebody who does kind of identify as as more of a cynic than a pessimist like and your point of view outside of just saying that there are things that you might be optimistic towards because let's be honest you can be pessimistic where it's a similar justification of maybe in other avenues of life, you're more optimistic and maybe in less avenues, you're more pessimistic. And so, you know, this overarching idea of pessimism that you discovered earlier that you talked about earlier, just kind of confused me a bit, you know, in the sense of does this overarching kind of matter in that sense and, and the pessimistic nature of things, you know, when it comes to a particular context, what would you say breaks the difference between cynicism and pessimism when you are just dealing with specific contexts? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. You know? Yeah. You know, like what you said, like I can be pessimistic about a great many things, but I am, but I am not a pessimist, right? Like I don't, I do not hold a overall pessimistic worldview. Uh, I just don't think the world is that bad. (laughs) Um, You know, when it comes to the, again, further comparisons, between pessimism and cynicism here is that it really is about attitude and about how you've, I think, you know, you've, you've said it well, you know, previously uh, in this conversation is like how you view the, the outlook of certain situations and the outcomes is that, you know, cynicism, again, it is tough to make clear distinctions because there are so many, uh, related ideas going on there you know well, but- i do have an idea for one this is kind sure. of what i'm getting at not to interrupt you but i think for me i've been thinking about this especially when we took our break is that i find that 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 pessimism is it's this this concept of you 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 know that the outcome or the perception of the outcome will be negative and 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 negative in the sense of of not having a any other outcome and i think that what a cynic does 
as a cynic has fun acknowledging certain negative elements of outcomes, but not necessarily defining the outcome as a whole as negative. Yeah, I think I think that's fair to say, you know, because as again, as a cynic, I okay, again, a great example that I've I've probably used previously on this podcast is that when I used to live in Portland, uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, I was kind of a bright eyed optimist when I first moved there because I was like, hey, like the city, this is where, you know, all the opportunity is. I love the culture. And then after living there for, uh, you know, a decent amount of time, my view changed quite a bit and I became more cynical in the sense that I thought the politics would never change in that in that town. I thought the town was getting overall worse um, as far as crime and the way that the city uh, it's was dealing with its infrastructure, the homelessness problem, things like that. Basically, cynicism for me was a point of. Yeah, I think you said it best before. Like, there's probably not going to be any change here, and it's probably going to be for the worst. Whereas, if I was a pessimist, I would probably say that that Portland is a reflection of the entire world, um, mm. and that like the politics, you know, never change. I mean, like. I sort of broadly agree with this, but not in its entirety, you know, but, 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 but oh, politics, you know, will never like, will never lead to any good outcomes. Uh, homelessness is a problem everywhere, which it is. Um, and I mean, you're not, you're it, not necessarily wrong. And that's, that's an argument of power and the corruption of power. Cause like, sure. You know, politics yeah. is essentially gaining power, but okay. Well then riddle me this then. What would you consider this? I've recently been, uh, so as people know, there was a show and it's so funny now because, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, again, like I'm optimistic, but there is a dark humor side to me. So I've been watching Grimm um, recently and I've been rewatching that. And I'm now I'm in the fifth season, I believe. And there's only six seasons that are on. It's on Prime Video. And I saw the first season way back when it first came out. And I think well, it was in 2011. Also I'm, filmed in Portland. <laughs> well, that no, that's I'm, that's what I'm getting to. Yeah. So like there's there's a reason why I'm bringing this up. And so, uh, you know, I've been watching the show and. You know, it's 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 hilarious because obviously the Grimm is a detective and it talks about Portland PD and like, you know, there's an episode where like they go to Portland PD and it's like the city trusts you. And it's just hilarious when you just think of what's going on today in Portland and, you know, with 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 the, with all the riots and, and stuff. And, and just that's just a funny dynamic to me. But and would you say that this is more cynical or pessimist? Because there's one issue, you know, being from Oregon myself and spending a lot of time in Portland, uh, I, aka my friends, I've never lived there directly like you have, but I've spent quite a few time in there. What bothers me the most about that show is that, you know, they they actually do a very good job of representing Oregon. I'll give them that. Like, they pronounce everything correctly. A lot of, like, the fun stuff. They do, they do a decent job. What really drives me nuts is that every... And I know that this is, like, um, I'm signaling here, but I'll say this. I am aware that there are certain mechanics that you need to follow because people don't want to see busy times. You know what I mean? Like it just cuts to everybody doing something. But right. what's funny is every time that they show up to a place in downtown Portland, they just immediately find a parking spot, like right in front of where they need to be. <laughs> like it'll show the car roll up and they'll just park and then they'll get yeah. out and they'll be right there. You know, or like every time they go to eat at a restaurant, like they do a really good job at like kind of, uh, really representing the 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 atmosphere of Portland dining, uh, especially downtown. But again, every time it'll be like a Friday night, and they're like, "Oh, I got to meet somebody here." Every time they walk in, like they get to sit, like they just immediately get brought to a table. <laughs> you know, and I, and I and like for me, I'm just like like I've been to Portland so many times. But the problem about Portland is, no matter where you are, no matter what time of the day, you're going to spend like 25 minutes 
like looking for a fucking place to park. Right. You know, because parking is so egregious. And then like most often, like at peak dinner times, like it's going to be difficult to find a spot. You're going to be on weight. And I know that you get lucky, but like, so would that mean, is that, is that like a cynical, what is that then? Oh, for sure. If you point, no, I if I get I, kind I, of slightly. I think that is cynical. I mean, you know, I think an even more egregious example is the uh, show that was on IFC called Portlandia. Uh, a lot of people are probably familiar with it. It starred Fred Armisen of SNL fame and uh, Carrie <sighs> Brownstein. Uh, she's a musician from the Portland area. And it is just this complete fantasy world <laughs> showing like how great the Portland area is and about Oregon. And, you know, like there's this famous song, like I think of the first episode of that show, like the dream of the nineties is alive in Portland as if like the nineties never stopped in Portland and like everything is right. Um, the thing is, yeah, though, the, is- I think one of the lines Fred Astaire says is like Portland's one of those weird areas that you can, you can retire at 20 years old working for a coffee shop. Like, <laughs> like it's one of the lines. Yeah. I think it's like, one of the it's lines so he stupid, says, you know, like it's, it's funny because in a way you're like, ah, that's funny. Like I live in Portland is sort of true. But then on the other side of things, you're like, this is bullshit. Like there is so much more like nastiness going on in Portland. I mean, like, you know, a lot of people tend to forget that in the eighties, there was this like huge skinhead movement, like with gangs in Portland where like these skinheads would like track down black people and like murder them, you know, like it was nasty, you know, well, like, no, to be fair, not just that though, Oregon's Oregon's history in general is very nasty. Um, for sure. Oregon yeah, for sure. was, especially for, you know, especially for being a Northern state, we were definitely, yeah, we we definitely, well, and, and I guess you can say that we, yeah, we we I definitely mean, you say, really had. Um, you say northern a lot state, of, but we were in the frontier. You know, that's a little bit different. The we were the wild west. That's true. That's fair. That's that's yeah. the very fair. Point. Um, but no, you're you're not wrong about that. And and the way that Portlandia portrays Portland specifically, it is as if it is the you know this gleaming city on the hill when. Portland is probably, you know, the number one city for gentrification is about the whitest city in America. Um, you know, and they, and they talk about like how there's no problems at all, but underneath the surface, there's all this grit and, and griminess to that city that, that people aren't really privy to when they watch that show. It's just sort of this idea of Portland that people have in their heads of like, Hey, it rains there all the time and people are silly. You know, like it right, but it's also <laughs> perception, dude. I lived in New York for six months and I go back and visit New York. Like, I can tell you firsthand that this kind of grit, I'm not acknowledging that it doesn't exist because you're right. It's definitely more of a, a hyperactive thing out of it, but it, it is nowhere near the level of grit you're going to see in a lot of, a lot of large, you know, metropolitan cities. Sure. Um, sure. You know, especially yeah. in, in the and best way, the only way I can really say that is not just like grit of like people and think, I remember uh, I made the fatal mistake and apparently all New Yorkers go through this, especially when you move there for the first time. Um, it's like I had bought a, a pair of, of shoes that had white like soles on the bottom, you know, like a white rim. And I wore them for maybe six hours and there was no white on the shoe. <laughs> like, God. and the first thing you kind of learn from most New Yorkers is like, if you're going to walk in downtown, like if you're going to spend a lot of time, like, especially in Manhattan, they're like, what are you doing? Like, you don't wear white shoes. Like, right. you know, and I'm just dirty. like, okay, yeah, because it's dirty. And I'm like, oh shit, that's good to know. And they're not wrong. They were like these nice boat shoes. And I'm like, yeah, these are, these are almost ruined like in a way. So, you know, it's, like it's, it's just uh, interesting though. Great joke that uh, Louis CK made. Um, sorry again, if that's triggering, but you know, he was talking about New York city and, and littering and like he, somebody saw him littering 
and you know just threw like a you know piece of candy you know paper on the ground and people are like hey pick up that litter it's like what do you mean this whole city is litter like <laughs> like this this whole city is just a big chunk of litter on the planet right, but, but it's like, also the prime example though and and this is maybe okay maybe this is the example of mind frames maybe right now we're talking about the scope of cities because from a from a pessimistic mind frame you can say that all cities are dirty you know, like, you know, most of the time walking through New York, like, do I know, do I acknowledge that sometimes you see like all the public trash cans are kind of overflowing? You know, do you see just like all like the, the stains on the sidewalk? And like, sometimes you get the smell like the, just like the smell oh, yeah. that comes up through the, the subway system. And, you know, you have that, but also too, like what I felt when I was there is there was so much history, you know, you saw buildings oh, sure. that were, that were, you know, and like, for, not even just that though. Yeah, and and for me, it's not even that because when I went to the UK, now that was crazy. Like you know, oh, that yeah. was even further history. You know, so obviously there are places in the world with a deeper, rich history. Yes, but when I come from a relatively, you know, an area that's relatively modern, you know, and the first time that you know, I think we went into one of the craziest moments is in New York. We went into this pub that was like classified as one of the oldest Irish pubs in New York. Now, of course, everywhere you go, there's going to be a pub that that claims that they're the oldest. You know, but they had the original flooring and they had some legit stuff. There was like, there was a, um, they had an article that was framed on the wall that was written in, in, in the New York times in like 19, like 1908 or God. something like that. And like, and it literally had said something about this bar and like the bar that we were sitting in now and how it was like modern for the times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, yeah. So in 1908, they were like, yeah, this bar is crazy modern. You know, and here I am sitting in that same bar, you know, so to me, like that was there was there was a connection there. And there's obviously a a beautiful nature, you know, like about opportunity and and what we've accomplished seeing the big skyscrapers. And, you know, I guess everybody thinks everybody thinks of Jay-Z's song, you know. That's where dreams are come to make made Jay Z oh, and Beyonce. Or, sure. or, or, yeah. No, not Beyonce. Is it the Jay Z? Yeah, where it dreams is Jay Z, but I, I can't remember who else. He has that's not Beyonce. That, I don't think. But yeah, song. yeah, something. Yeah, dreams are made. Yeah, this is where dreams are made of, or something. His lyrical lines there. So, you know, that would be kind of be more of the optimistic outlook. Well, I think you know, Josh, as, what, as vibration of that. What what you're hitting on there is is something about beauty, and you know, there's there's an aesthetic quality to somewhere like New York City. Um, that you don't necessarily you, that you wouldn't see if you had a, a wholly pessimistic outlook uh, on the world, and I think that's where you know we do have to draw distinctions here, and like why pessimism is so linked in with realism a lot, you know, because people have a pessimistic attitude toward the world. Like, okay, you mentioned like cities are gross and dirty, and they're and like there's always some bad shit going on. Um, that's like kind of true, you know, if we like we look at it statistically, but that doesn't capture like what is actually going on in a city, you know? And so like you have to do, yeah, I mean, you do have to take, I would say an optimistic worldview on it. I think there's some other, you know, terms that you could uh, qualify, but you know, there is really interesting things going on in cities, you know, and culture, and there is beauty in the, in the architecture and things like that. And so you don't have to take a full, a fully pessimistic view of that particular um, going on and if you, but you can still have a cynical outlook in it you know you can still say like oh god homelessness is, is always going to be a problem or homelessness is on the rise um, you know like you in, in New York I'm sure the subway was always a I mean, I'm sure you would get used to it, but like, I'm sure the subway was a pain in the ass and probably didn't seem logical when you first got there, you know, so you might, you know, have a cynical point of view there. 
Uh, there's lots of things that you can. No, the subway was fine. It's more of just. Uh, okay. It's more of just. You're right. It's the first time you see. I guess I don't know. It's the first time you experience people that you know are like get on the train and that like try to ask for money. You know, oh, and like yeah. certain things that you're not used to. I mean, I remember the first time that you know, because subway systems made sense to me. And it was super nice because it was a very convenient way. They, they, is it a very effective way to travel? You know, the one thing about New York that's really nice is it's a it's a perfect grid system. You have you know avenues yeah. and streets. And realistically speaking, in the entire Manhattan, like if you you don't even most most of the time, you know, you don't even say where you are. Like you give the you give the coordinates. So like you know, I'll talk to my friends and I'll be like, "Where are you at?" And I'm like, "Oh, we're getting some food." You're like, "Oh, well, what restaurant?" You're like, "Oh, I'm on the corner of Fifth Avenue and you know 127th or something." Uh-huh. You know, and so then I know like you take the trains to navigate to to those kind of marker points, and so that's kind of that avenue of it that you it's it's really just a system that 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 is conducive to kind of getting around but there are people that you know I would get on the train and for the first time in my life like this person had got on the train and he like banged on the side of it and I was like what's going on and he like, like you know cuz I never went on the train and he literally was like hello everybody like my name is so and so I really hate to do this but it's like you know He's like, my grandmother has cancer and I haven't seen my kids in like a year and a half. And like, I'm just doing my best to try to see my kids. So like any money can help. And I'm like, what is happening? You know, it's the first time that I ever kind of, you know, experienced because I've always, you know, importantly, you'll see people that kind of ask you for change when you walk by, but I've never seen this grandiose pitch because of the fact that like subways, obviously it's a, it's a, it's a place where a lot of people are gathered at one point in time. Yeah you know, to, to transfer everywhere. And, and that kind of level of, you, you, you see that. And unfortunately I will admit that like, because it's so, you just, you get interact with that so much that I was told by some of my friends in New York that you just put your headphones on, you just put on music and you just kind of stay in your own world until you get to where you need to be. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's definitely that, that is the same kind of cynicism that I, um, that I learned living, living in Portland. Uh, you know, you just, because there are, there is, so many homeless people there um, that you just learn. But I want to touch on realism a bit. I want to touch on this, this idea of realism a bit because I've always seen realism as kind of acknowledging that, that there are certain things that we may not be able to change, but it's how you navigate and keep moving forward. And this is where I think that realism. So I I guess I'm curious because what I, what I'm, what I'm believing is that culturally what I kind of see from what I'm digesting is that there's this confusion between this more of this pessimistic mind frame and then feeling almost 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 virtuizing that pessimistic view by 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 rebranding it as realist or like as realistic. Sure, I mean like I've had you know and oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead if you if you well, have, I was if you have say, an idea I mean, on that because like, that's kind of really the crux. I was going to say I've I've had situations like that where uh, you know I've been accused of being pessimistic or or being a pessimist. Um, when it comes to something, it's like, look, no, I'm just being realistic. Like, this is just how things are working. And I, I think, I suppose, like, in reality, <laughs> see what I did there? I am being That's funny. Yeah, no, 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 no. We're going to flesh this out. That's hilarious because I'm essentially, I'm, I'm actually talking about the exact opposite. I'm talking about saying something pessimistically and then believing that you are realistic. You know, and so like, I'm actually curious. I don't know if I know it's like difficult because we speak in Gerardo. So do you have like an example of something that you have been called out for, for being pessimistic, but you legitimately believe that you're being realistic? 
Ah, uh, God, I can't really think of anything at the moment. Um, you know, but there there have been times when I've I don't know, I don't know. I, I've had the. I've, how do you separate the two then? Yeah. How well, do you how do you a, differentiate? I think you know when, it, com- mind, when then... it comes to realism and pessimism and separating the two, I think pessimism again it comes to this point where like there's nothing I can really there's nothing I can do about it. But with realistic, you know, with realism. For example, I think that there comes with that an understanding about how the way the world works and that you're like, okay, well, this is the way of the world. These are the tools in order to to get to where I need to, to, to navigate through it. So like, for example, you know, we do live in a society that is, uh, that it, that hinges on the, um, uh, the propagation and continuing of capitalism, right? That just is the way that's just and this is me making a realistic statement a real a realism statement right where i'm just like this is just the way the world is you know we live in a globalized you know capitalistic uh society and because of that there are certain operations that you can do to get ahead now there are factors that will make it harder for you to get ahead and again that's not necessarily a pessimistic view that is just a realistic view or like okay let's just say for example and this is if the opposite is true, this is me not uh, devaluing anybody's experiences in the world, but let's just say that systemic racism is a very real thing, whatever that means. And because of the color of your skin, you know, today's standards, you will have a hard time moving up a corporate ladder or something like that. And because of that, then your pathways to navigating through our capitalistic global society are different. And, as a and a realist might say like well i'm always going to have a problem in this regard you know regarding my race and so i have to navigate this differently now a pessimist might say that because of the color of my skin i'm always going to be downtrodden and there's nothing i can do about it and a lot of it but there still is a reaction to it i mean you know most people who who um claim that they're victims of, of systemic racism are usually aren't silent about it. You know, they usually want to do something about it. Um, that's why protests and, and, and activism exists. Um, but I think the, the it's, it's really hard to separate them without getting into like the minutia of a very specific, um, experience. And I think, well, watch, um, we try. Okay. Um, okay. So, good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because I, really, this is kind of where my brain is going, and this I, I'm really kind of bringing this out because I'm tr- I'm going to try to make this as digestible as possible, and let's hope that I'm not going to confuse listeners here because oftentimes, you know, sometimes I confuse my fucking self. But there, <laughs> there is when I think of when I think of realism, okay, I do not think of putting a positive or negative spin on it, uh-huh. and this is where I feel like people get it confused because like tick suffering for example you know if i'm going to use this as a term if i'm a pessimist i go you know we all suffer there's no way of getting rid of suffering and it's 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 awful you know what i mean and and that is you know and somebody who can go we're never going to get rid of suffering we always suffer there's no there's no good for it i'm just being real about the world so that's what i mean by confusing it where you you're taking this negative outlook and you think that that is reality. So you label it as realism. Uh-huh. And so I think the breakdown, the difference is realism is acknowledging that no matter what we do, there's going to be suffering. And I think pessimism is labeling that suffering as innately bad. 
And for me, optimistically, is, is labeling that suffering as maybe having a positive outcome by using it to compare it to non-suffering and, and to have something like that or to go less broad. You know, it's that's what I think when I think of something as realistic where you can say, like, look, people people are going to be murdered. Right. Like it's it's realistic of me to say that people are going to be murdered. Now, yeah. the spin that I put on that is is going to be, a, uh, you know, whether that be a pessimistic or an optimistic one. So in the sake of this pessimism episode. What I kind of feel like happens is like, look at the political sphere. You have people that are on the right that go, you know, the, the, the left, all they're going to, all they're trying to do is create this damn socialist utopia. They're trying to change your way of life. They're taking your rights away. You know, this is like, this is some of the negative rhetoric. And and, and when you got to go, oh my God. Yeah. But like for me though, like as somebody who thinks differently, I feel like that's a very pessimistic mind frame. You know, you're, you're, you're generalizing this entire, you know, either progressive movement or whatever you don't know or understand you're, you're pessimistic. And then you ask them, you're like, no, 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 that's just the reality of our situation. I'm just being real, you know? And that's where I get scared for that confusion where I do not think that that's realism. You know, you having a negative mind frame of it. So, and again, like not to repeat myself, but the point that I kind of really want to hold in and want your opinion on is where I think the divide is, is that realism doesn't innately need to have a positive or negative spin. It's just acknowledging certain realities that are unchangeable. And then where pessimism and optimism come into play is the way that we perceive and interpret those realities. Yeah. I think, um, what I was mentioning earlier about my concept of grand indifference, I think that is a realistic approach to viewing, to viewing life that like life just has these, you know, the suffering within it and you, you have an option. You can just, you can choose to suffer. You can do something else. You know, you can choose to experience life. I think that's more, a more realistic approach rather than like, well, life is suffering and that sucks. And like, it'll always be. And I would agree because you're Um, not, yeah, I would agree with that. And there was, I think for a more uh, succinct example is I was listening to this podcast today. um, Funny enough, you know, podcast talking about other podcasts um, from the Michael Shermer show. And we've talked about Michael Shermer on the podcast. He's a great, um, uh, he's a great skeptic. Um, And he was talking with Andrew Doyle. And if you're not familiar with Andrew Doyle, he is a comedian. He used to be a teacher. He's a social commentator uh, living in the UK. And he created this Twitter character called Titiana McGrath, who basically is like a sat, you know, satirizing woke culture by like, you know, saying all the, you know, necessary things that the people in the, in the woke sphere uh, talk about. And, you know, people have shit on him quite a bit, uh, you know, for it, but he wrote this book about free speech because of course he did. And, if, you know, I, I wanted to listen to it because it's like, Hey, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's just a new conversation to hear. I want to hear this out. And I like Michael Shermer. Um, but honestly, as much as I love free speech and I do, I'm kind of sick of hearing about it, <laughs> you know, because it seems like that's what, you know, people on the, whatever, whatever, you know, uh, place on the political spectrum these people occupy, you know, the IDW, you know, what have you, the Sam Harris's of the world, the Jordan Peterson's, all them, like all they do is talk about the shit. And I'm like, dude, there are other things to talk about. It's, it, and it's, no, it's, and actually, it's actually kind of, it's annoying too. You're right. No. Cause even now, like, let's, let's bring this up for a little bit because you know, the little, little, little Nas X video, the controversy that's coming about him, like oh, humping right. the devil or something. Yeah. 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 Um, it's like, who you know, and, and there's <laughs> the, the, well, the problem is though, is there's literally conservative Christians, you know, that, that identify like basically they're yeah. trying to get it. He, they're trying to get it taken down uh-huh. and, you know, yeah. and it cracks me up because like, I'm just like, well, what happened to free speech? 
Right. <laughs> like, like what happened because to freedom of expression? It, like, like with the, the woke culture, but as soon as somebody, you know, like uh, makes a video about like gay sex with the devil and having blood in their shoes, then all of a sudden it's <laughs> all yeah, of a sudden we got to censor that. And it's like, what? I know. And then like, they're like, oh no, it's, I'm like, and yeah, now we want to censor that. So it, it just blows my mind. Like both sides have a problem with it. And that's one thing that other podcasts acknowledge is like the right does its fair amount of censoring and, and squandering of, of free speech. So it's, it's almost funny the way that they talk about it too in those certain regards. But you know, the only thing I'll say to that is we grew up in a childhood with the South Park movie where Satan literally had a sexual relationship with Sudan Hussein. So like, like (laughs) that was art, you know, and I, I just don't know. I feel like, again, this is a prime, another prime example of like, you know, we just, it's just, it's just kind of ridiculousness um, and like kind of losing sight and, and being kind of more narrow focused. But yeah, well, I don't know. I guess maybe that they're on right. That's that's no, pessimistic. But what I was um, what I was getting at is that this you know this podcast, uh, what Andrew Doyle uh, was talking about was how we're living in this really illiberal mo- uh, moment right now, and uh, and the woke you know social justice warriors they are uh, ideologues and they and they are pr- uh, prisoners to their ideology and how like they can't think out of them and you know they they are sort of no longer individuals because they, they only want to go align with, you know, the social justice and and wokeism. And to me, like that is a pessimistic outlook because it's like, these people are just ideologues. There's nothing that can change their mind. They're like basically a cult. I've referred, I've I've heard this so many times where that the, you know, the super far left, like woke people are cultists. And, you know, a lot of ways I can, I can see why you might say that, Um, you know, but to me, that pessimistic outlook, I would just combat that with a more realistic approach. And we talked about this on our on our liberalism episode. Um, is that liberalism itself? You know, when people talk about we're living in this illiberal uh, moment, it is liberalism is itself an ideology. And when you talk about concepts like free speech, you know, the free expression of ideas, the mark, you know, free markets, all that stuff that comes with liber- liberalism, you've just assumed a priori that those things are good because you've been taught this ideology and anything else outside of it is like, well, how could you believe that? You know? And to me, that's an interesting point. That is a very interesting point that you just made. Yeah. And to me, I want to take that realistic approach. It's like, no, you are just living within another ideology. That's not a bad thing. I think liberalism can be really good for society. I, I really do think it is. Um, but there are aspects of it that have led to late stage capitalism and this techno futurism that we're living in now that I think is totally fucking yeah. fucking us over. And or um, hyper consumerism, right. like, you know, like planned obsoletance is wild, you know, like yeah. certain things that we're building that we're designing to fail, you know, and it's funny too, cause you have, you know, you look at things that were built prior and like, what's that common phrase? You know, it's another idiom. We're like, Oh, things are not built to last anymore. You know, you hear like a lot of older generations say that like, Oh, things are not built to last no, absolutely. But no, I kind of want to touch on what you're saying there because that is, I would say that's a realistic, realistic approach because you're not taking any negative or positive outlooks. You're just saying that like, look, <laughs> what you're critiquing is just a different ideology that you were raised in and what makes yours right is the only reason that makes yours right is because that's the, the what you happen to like connect with or, or be raised in and not acknowledging that others, or, you know, even going as far as like you said, it's very pessimistic to say that because I would acknowledge that like certain, my certain of my progressive values, you know, or like even, even touching on certain liberal aspects, it's actually like, you know, I actually like the concept of liberalism as a theory of giving everybody the best chance. But right now I think where progressive comes in and they go, Hey, well you said that, but like, 
this group of people here, like throughout history, statistically speaking, they're kind of not getting that <laughs> the best chance. Uh-huh. Like, so maybe what if we like change some things to try to make that a little bit more fair? And then people are like, fuck you. What are you doing? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and it's just like that. That's kind of where I, I, I feel that. And so, you know, and I'm more, I guess you can say this. The reason why I feel like what kind of can, squ- can squander, correct me if I'm wrong here, but a good anti or a good way to squander pessimism is to is to try to is try to open up your sense of curiosity and understanding. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's um, one of the more powerful avenues that you can take is to just realize like the world isn't just I mean, there is suffering in the world, but it is not just suffering. There's plenty of joys in the world. And maybe maybe we can sort of move into one of our last uh, subjects uh, for this episode before we wrap it up. Uh, Josh, if there's nothing else you have to say is I think um, we should talk about antinatalism uh, for uh, for a few yeah. because there is some interesting there's some interesting things going on here. So, you know, part of what sparked my interest in doing this episode specifically, you know, one, like I think the way that we've talked about um, certain ideas throughout our podcast history is like pessimism has come up. Optimism has come up quite a bit. Um, but specifically, Josh, you had an encounter, uh, not too long ago and, you know, this person, you know, can remain completely anonymous here, but you, you had an encounter with, um, with, with someone who was, I don't want to necessarily call her an antinatalist, you know, but she is, you know, from what you can recount to me is like, she said that, you know, people, we shouldn't be having children anymore. Do you want to maybe fill, uh, fill me and the rest of our audience in on that a little bit? And maybe we can sort of springboard off of that. Sure. There was a, you know, and again, of course, for, for privacy sake, I'm not going to do this, but this particular person, um, happened to make the comment. And I feel like too, we, we were, it was the word choice that was used as well. Um, yeah. she initially had said that it was selfish mm. to have children Yeah, and it was innately selfish to have children. And, and it was selfish in the right. And when I, when I tried to expand on that belief, because obviously uh, this, this person is not interested in having children and that's what we're kind of fleshing out. And so I, I, I was like, that's why she said that. <laughs> if that's not clear. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I was talking to this mother of nine and she was like, no, right. Yeah. No, but she essentially was saying that it's selfish to have kids. When I tried to expand on what it meant to be selfish and, and it was, it was the sense of that, humans are the problem. We are the ones that are constantly, you know, in and again, from an animal rights perspective, like, you know, very, very much so of, of we take advantage of everything. We are almost, and again, and I, she didn't really use this exact phrasing, but I've heard it from other people too, that like, you know, humans like for, for naturalists too, or, or, or people that are environmentalists in particular is like humans are almost like a virus on mother earth, you know, because we repopulate, we grow, we expand, we burn, we don't, you know, take care of the planet that we live on. And there's a lot of aspects of that. So for her, it was a lot of like, here's all the awful things that humans are doing. You know, here's the way that we've decided to structure our lives. We're primal, you know, and it's almost just better to not keep contributing to that, you know, and it's selfish to do so. And I was fascinated by that. And I almost tried to make the argument that, well, would it be actually selfish to not have that? Because, what if like there are things that can make this world a better place? And what if, 
without people having kids in the right way, they can counterbalance and grow. And, and, you know, there has to be the yin and the yang, you know, we, we live, we've built our worlds in the sense of duality, even though like is duality really in nature? That's for another podcast, but we've, we, we've built this world in this duality. So I was trying to come at it from that standpoint. Right. Yeah. And I think, I, I think that's, I mean, it's, it, that's good to bring up. I mean, a specific example actually is, um, are cows. Now we can look at the, well, let's just do this real quick though, before we kind of, now we just said about that, let's kind of quickly define antinatalism in case sure. we have some listeners that may not be a hundred, sure, sure. like, you know, some listeners might know, but maybe some listeners will like just to kind of refresher on what that term means. Right. So the, the operative word here is natal. So natal, I'm sure you've heard in like, you know, it comes to pregnancy, like you have prenatal and like natal wards and, and uh, nativity, you know, basically, you know, the word natal has a lot to do with birth and pregnancy, you know, fertility, that, that sort of thing. Basically, like you were giving birth, uh, you know, to a human person. And so natalism or, you know, is basically the idea of, you know, well, I shouldn't say natalism, but like there is pronatalism, which is like. There, you are taking proactive steps uh, to continue the population of, you know, it could be humans, it could be, you know, any other animal species. And then there was antinatalism, basically saying that like we should we should do everything in our power to stop having children, whatever population, and specifically uh, surrounding uh, the human population. And so, and more specifically, too, I guess what I was trying to get you at is more specifically, antinatalists believe that. It is actually morally wrong right. to give birth. Yeah, yeah. Um, to bring a child into the world. There's a level of suffering that they feel. So that's kind of what I really wanted to focus on is this really main concept right. of they believe that is it is morally incorrect to to bring somebody into this world. Yeah, and and that comes in uh, two folds there. Well, you mentioned one where like there is inherent suffering that comes into the world um, uh, for children, you know, for for newborns, and then also too, I think they're you know, or just in life in general. But then also too, like the the necessary suffering that you're that you're then putting a burden on the rest of the world, you know, like the environmental impact, for example, just like, okay, the more people that we have, the worse that we're doing to the planet, you know? And so there's that other moral argument there as well. Right. Or a lot of people kill other people. So, you know, it's like, Oh, if this person wasn't born they made him not, you know what I mean? Like there's, yeah, there's that aspect, but yeah. So anyway, back to (laughs) like now that we kind of got to figure it out, like, and so the thing is here, (laughs) <laughs> this is, you know, this is definitely going to be one of those more contentious ideas here. I don't think necessarily between Josh and I, but like just, you know, thinking about these ideas is that you, there is an assumption brought in. This is this again, it's a pessimistic assumption that there is that the inherent suffering in the world is always bad and that we should do everything in our power, you know, even though it's hopeless, we should do everything in our power to stop that suffering. And for the antinatalists, it's like, we need to stop having kids. Like we have to stop having kids. One, like, you know, bringing a child into the world, they suffer too much. You know, like they, you know, they can, they go hungry. Some kids die, you know, like really early on. I'm talking really early on. Um, you know, uh, and then on top of that, there are there's the environmental factors and like the two questions that I would pose to you. And this is something Josh, you and I talked about off mic, you know, when this initial conversation came up is that one, if humans weren't around, w- you know, if we stopped producing, 
then would those environmental problems necessarily go away or natural problems necessarily go away? You have to look at that counterfactual, you know, like, okay, climate change. Sure. Like I, I I'll give you that one. Like if, if we didn't have humans and climate change would probably reverse course over, you know, pretty gradually, but it would reverse course over time. And then things would go back, you know, to a, to a particular state, whether or not that's a better state than now, you know, is up in the air. We just don't know. Um, so there's that. Yeah. But like you would have somewhat argued that like humans have increased climate change, but like there's different, like the climate, like ice ages and certain stuff we've had catastrophic climate events happen right without the strong influence of humanity. Uh, No, absolutely. In in my, like there are still going to be, or, or not this. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say. No, this is just fascinating shit yeah. because yeah, <laughs> there are still going to be, you know, this is the, this is the same thing I was talking about before. There are still going to be asteroid impacts. There is still going to be, you know, in four and a half billion years, the sun is going to become a red giant and consume the earth. So all life will die. All suffering will end on earth. I suppose that you know, there's that to look forward to, um, you know, but like it, it is just like there are natural events. Now, is that a realistic statement or an optimistic statement? <laughs> <laughs> right. But, you know, there, there are just things in the world that are that that drive things to suffer and humans don't necessarily no, have yeah. have anything to do with it. And it's just I always find it frustrating to say, you know, because like you, you run into this with, with environmentalists is, you know, like, oh, we're killing the planet. It's like, no, we're not killing the planet. Like th- we are just making a change to the planet. The planet is reacting to it. It's reacting to us. And eventually we might change the environment so much where it's not conducive for us to live here. That's a very, that's a very um, uh, easy possibility to, you know, that, that should yes. be considered. And we also escalated that. Right. But, you know, I, 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 the one thing I wanted to pitch in here before I forget is that this concept of, you know, with, with antinatalism is of like kids are, you know, we're basically going to, it's just the life is just going to be suffering and, and why bring in, you know, why bring people into this world for that? Now, not to be sound disingenuous here, but the, where I break and where my optimism is, is I feel like that approach is just fucking lazy. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you know, like I'm sympathetic in some regards. So for example, I, I can understand because a lot of what I believe in is I feel that they're not wrong in the sense that there are a lot of people that have children that are not necessarily set up in the best place to give that child the best outcome, uh-huh. you know, and, and I, and I sympathetic to that, you know, looking into counseling and the, the, the master's program I'm doing, like we, we just did human development and certain things that have been empirically found to on average help with, with autonomous adults. I'm like, Holy shit. Like, you know, there's a lot that's required of the parent that our current like system of, of living is not very conducive um, you know, to making sure that your child develops properly, right. you know, or AKA the education of how you can psychologically or, you know, affect your, your child development, you know, but do I think that the answer to that is to just not have it because of course it's going to be suffering. That's where the pessimism comes into play. Right. And so for me, the opposite is I went, well, if I can acknowledge that just like you can, I'm doing things like this podcast or, or trying to become a counselor in the sense of helping people learn, or, or navigate some of these things and, and to try to better or correct or course correct for, you know, these certain elements. Because, you know, an antinatalist would make a point that I think last time I looked at these statistics, and I don't know the exact numbers, maybe I'll try to find them. But, but statistically speaking, those from lower income households have more children. Sure. 
then yeah. those from the less, you know, the, those below the poverty line are going to have more children than those that are not. And so y- you can look at that and pessimistically from an antinatalist perspective, be like, look at that. It's a prime example of why we shouldn't be having kids because all those kids are going to suffer. And like, you know, part of me wants to be like, well, that just seems, I don't know. Am I it wrong? It just seems lazy. Like, it's well, why not? lazy. Yeah. Yeah. Th- good yeah, point. Absolutely. And you know, this is uh, again, like I, okay. I am biased here. I am a parent. Right. I have a child. <laughs> so I, I am definition <laughs> by definition, you know, not I'm not pro. I, I don't know. I'm not pro natalist. I, sus- I suppose, you know, but like I'm not anti-natalist. You know, I had a kid. Um, I'm also like not pro abortion either. But, you know, at the same time, like I think women should be able to have abortions, you know, like so there's that complicating issue as well. But the thing is, is like if you just if you go on assuming that like children will only suffer or like there is the the suffering outweighs all of the goodness and happiness that a child can have i think that is just misguided i mean i can tell you right now my son fucking loves dinosaurs you know like this is he's a typical you know like four you know almost four-year-old boy but he wants to grow up to be a fucking Tyrannosaurus Rex. I mean, that's insane, you know, but like he has so much joy thinking about dinosaurs. I guarantee it. He's at daycare right now pretending to be a dinosaur because it's fucking fun. You know, like that's just what kids do. Right. Like they pretend they imagine. And this is this is where I'm going to bring in the aesthetic argument here is that when I was talking about before with the grand indifference and the life that we're giving that, that we were given just by being born. There is a tremendous amount of life out there to experience. And I think that while there is, yes, tremendous suffering, I mean, like, just think about, like, this is, you know, this might be hard for some listeners uh, to hear, but just think about, again, I'm, I'm using the child example because it's the most succinct and probably hardest to hear, but think about the children who are born and then put into like child sex trafficking and or who or who starve to death you know like that's fucking awful but we can improve the lives of other people i mean this is not like an, i'm not making an altruistic argument here but like we can just go out and try to improve the lives of other people we can educate people we can educate children uh, and we can try to give children especially a good life. Like there are really amazing things to appreciate that are out there. You know, one of the things that's really important, I'm sure Josh for, for uh, human development that you've learned is outside playtime. Right. And not just being stuck inside. I mean, there are cases of, of children who have been deprived of sunlight and deprived of outside time. And like, they don't, they can't speak, you know, they've been living in a dark room their entire lives until they were like 14. I can't remember the, this. The, there's one particular case where a young girl was like stuck in a room in a, in a dark room, locked in a chair on a chair physically for like, you know, 12, 13 years of her, of her entire life. Like that's not good for somebody. And like, you know, to be able to get a children outside in the woods, for example, to see nature, like that's a really, amazing experience for them like there's so much to learn and there's so much to experience and my argument here against the antinatalist is like you're just maybe you're just not seeing life for what it can be you know like this is you know i don't know what you what you have to say well, no it, it's the it, no well yeah what i'm saying is the reason why i felt like we wanted to really talk about antinatalism is not because of that conversation i had because it's it's a very to me it's a very easy example of of identifying the different avenues of thought and what i mean by outcome mm-hmm. and pathways towards those outcomes you know and what i've been talking about this entire time because let's take it this way this is all surrounded by childbirth and bringing a child into this world and what's going to sure, happen yeah. so 
I think it's realistic. Like you said, it's realistic to acknowledge that there are going to be situations where children are going to be born. And most often, like they're either going to suffer a great deal with minimal happiness that life has to offer. You know, there's going to be all these things that are going to happen. These negative things that are going to happen. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not trying to say that those things don't exist, but your answer to just be like, well, we shouldn't be having kids. It's kind of unrealistic. It's kind of like the mediocrity argument Mm -hmm. where it's like, no matter how hard we're going to try, we need something that's mediocrity. It, it, to me, it's a realistic statement to say people are just not going to stop having kids. Right. Like, you know, our biologies are designed because like, you know, especially for humans, it's like a lot of us enjoy the act of making children. Yeah. Like it is a very pleasurable reasons. act yeah. for us. And, and there's reasons for that. And so I just feel like it's lazy to me to go, well, you know, like I don't think, I think that pessimistically that everything, anybody that's born, it's just going to be suffering. They're only going to do wrong in the world. You know, they're not going to benefit or they're just going to, you know, they're going to be negative to animals and ruin our environment and nothing like that. So we just shouldn't have kids. You know, like, it's like, well, look, you know, what if it's not going to change? Like people are still going to have kids. So why not? You know, for me, that's where I tried to like go into the optimistic lens of like, well, if I know that people are going to have kids, well, then why not try to at least set it up to acknowledge that there are going to be tons of experiences where there is some joy to be found. Yeah. And in your, 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 and you are saying that in your personal context with your son, it's not that your son hasn't had moments of suffering, especially when you talk about falling and scraping like physical pain, but you've also like in the short amount of time, seen your kid experience joy and happiness mm-hmm. And like, if that's possible, then why not try and, and increase that and, and change it too, where we can also kind of use education to help, help people be more autonomous or help people understand the environment or help understand, you know, one of my, one of the things I, I would love to have is like, you know, where I think the government could help or where our money could be put to good use is like maybe funding a, like a parenting course that's either relatively cheap or free for new parents you know, that they get to go and learn certain avenues of what it means to be a parent, you know, and, and feel better about that situation. And maybe like, you know, a few generations from now, but this is also a problem with like the long game versus the short game too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right about that. And, you know, the difficulty of course that I see is that those people who are pessimistic out there and, and, and who view life as like this, just ultimate suffering, you know, to me, what I have to say to them and maybe, you know, this is uh, maybe one of the last things I'll say, you know, uh, at least a final argument is that to me, pessimism in itself, when, if you view the world as just entirely suffering and like that's, that sucks, that's it. And it's, it's all bad suffering. uh, You tend to deny life. You tend, you tend to deny the, the, what good can happen in life, all the experience that you can have. And when you deny the life, uh, you know, the potential life of somebody, uh, to me, that's nihilistic. And, you know, you know how I feel about that. <laughs> you're sounding real religious, you know. Well, I guess to clarify, I, I'm going to take a little different approach here. I, I have no qualm with a single person who goes, I feel that I don't want to have children because sure, like yeah. I, my experience with them might only lead them to suffering. So if somebody looks at me and goes, yeah, that's fine. Where I think it's fascinating is when you continue that and you go, no children should be born. 
Like now you're making a blanket statement that nobody should be having kids because it only leads to negative right. outcomes. That's where this antinatal, this pessimistic, this overview is interesting, you know, cause I'm not going to deny if I, there's a friend of mine that went, yeah, I know if I ever have kids, I'm not mentally able to take care of them. Or like, I believe that if in my personal context, I would do more harm than, than hurt. That's why like, I would be like, sure. I agree with that you know, in certain situations where if somebody, you know, that's why, like for me, that's why I'm pro-choice because it's like, I'm not, you know, of course I'm not, I'm also like you, I'm not saying that I'm pro-abortion, but like if there's a person that had a situation that went, I'm not ready to take care of this child. Like this child will, this will, this child will have more suffering than they will have. So in that individual context, sure, you make that choice, but to blanket it over, like, this is why I have a problem on the opposite side with certain religions. They're like, no, 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 this is what it is. So everybody has to follow this. Like, it's like, okay, well, that's where, that's where I kind of feel. And that's where I kind of feel what? this. No, go ahead. Keep, no, keep going. I'll, I'll say what I got to say in a second. The, I know. Cause I, I want to wrap this up soon here too. So that's kind of where I was alluding to what I view as a sense of selfishness uh-huh. is just being like, you know, I'm going to say that nobody should have kids because everybody's going to fail and, and not acknowledging that like, well, actually I feel that if I wanted to make a difference, like, you know, and maybe make somebody that could be changed. And so that's why I don't know if I'm confused or they're confused. I want your opinion realistically on this idea of, is it innately selfish to either have kids or not have kids? Uh, I mean, yes, I think, I, I think it, by definition, it is, it is selfish. You are, you are doing it. I mean, it's, it's difficult to say specifically, but you are doing it for yourself, you know, in the sense that you are propagating, you know, another you into the world and then and then hopefully that that person will do the same in 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 kind so that's interesting because um, i figured i don't know i figured you might want to talk about biology and like you know are we drawn to that like i think is there a certain uh, innate something within our our chemistry or within our neurology that like if we get attracted to certain things like are, do we want you know like obviously of course different strokes are different folks and and antinatalists wouldn't be able to exist if if we were just driven by biology because <laughs> right. obviously yeah. that'd be counter and that'd yeah. be counter intuitive but like well, i mean i think you know, there's I, I guess i'm arguing would you acknowledge that there might be other forces at play here of course yeah i mean i think i josh i think you and i wouldn't be the first people to acknowledge that like people do plenty of things that are that are, are against uh you know our our best nature <laughs> you know like there are plenty of people who go go out of their way to like inflict harm on themselves or or to uh you know to do things that maybe isn't smart no i'm not saying i'm i'm not saying that like oh if you don't have kids you're a fucking idiot um you know but there is there's something about uh you know about the prospects of of procreation that i think is it's obviously natural um you know but there is something of course, selfish about it in the sense that, uh, you know, having a child is like the ultimate act of creation. You, you literally created another life, you know, with you and your partner. And there is a lot of psychological, um, there, there's a lot of good things happening psychologically, you know, to you when you do that, that are for yourself, you know, they're for selfish reasons. I mean, like, you know, when I was young, I was just like, yeah, I want to have kids. I want to do that. I want to take part of a part in that process of life. But I think it's, it's, you know, just calling it purely selfish is kind of missing the point. Right. You know, like you're, Thank you know, you. you're, and I, that's where I wanted, wanted yeah. to get, I wanted to say it's context based and not just that though, but it's like, I think that you cannot, where I was trying to get at, I'm curious as to why I was curious on your answer, is I was just saying that selfishness, that label, 
I think cannot be applied initially. It's what happens after the fact, Uh because I feel that if you are a decent parent, it is no longer about you. Like you are, you're sacrificing a lot of your own time for your child. You're doing a lot of things for them. You live for them. You provide for them. And there is a lot of like selfish list that goes on. And I've seen new parents that struggle, that, that feel guilty for, for wanting to be selfish and doing things that they feel is right. If it either goes against their kids, like going out, you know, to eat when you know, you like tra- you guys have a babysitter or whatnot and things like that. But it's like, you know, I think that there are attitudes that parents have, or there's other parents that just have kids for welfare checks, whatever, you know, and they do that. And I think that labeling something selfish or selfless really depends on the type of parent that you are. And to me, I feel like it's, it's too early to label that right up. Just like, Oh, just, I want to have kids. Therefore that's innately selfish. Cause I worry, you know, I just feel that like, I do want kids, but the reason why I'm hesitant for ha- like, and not doing it right away is because I am actually acknowledging that there's a certain level of selfishness that I get, not caring for another human being that I'm not ready to give up yet. So for me, it's almost more selfish in my lens and my room. I'm being more selfish to not have kids because I understand right. the level of sacrifice and commitment it takes to raise a kid. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, but the thing is though, it's, it's always, there's always some kind of balance, you know, some, some parents are better at it than others, uh, you know, but uh, you know, there are plenty of things that I'm not necessarily doing uh, despite my child, but like, there are things that like I want to do for me, you know, that I enjoy, you know, um, that don't necessarily like, I want to, you know, I want my son to go away so I can play some video games. You know, that's a perfectly natural thing. No, but I I meant like, it's about pre-labeling, right? but like, I'm just saying like right now, even for this episode, like I know that innately you would want to finish this episode, but let's just say (laughs) that we still had like a half hour to go thought experiment. Let's just say that your like son bursted in like super upset and nobody else was around. Like you would obviously pause what you were doing and handle that situation. Sure. Yeah. You know, and, and I just, I, and I, that's, that's just kind of more what I'm alluding to. It's just, it's, I'm just trying to drone, like hone in the fact that like, yes, they're They're going to be parents that are super selfish and having kids for selfish reasons. But I would also argue that there's, there's a huge aspect of having children that is selfless. Yeah, absolutely. That is a part of it. And, and, and it's depending on the type of parent. So I feel like it's difficult to label that before you know, the type of parent that you're dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of, frankly, probably upper class people who get into the family life because that's what you do. Right. Like they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're like, oh, well, I've got to have a wife and a kids, you know, like I've, I've just got to do that. You know, like I got to get the job. I got to get this fucking dorky career. You know, I got to wear a fucking suit, you know, like all that, you know, whatever the, the social status is like, I got to have a wife and kids, you know, or, you know, or husband and kids, whatever it is, you know, like that is that is something that comes along with society that unfortunately we've been sold that like that. That's what you need, that nuclear family. Now, part, you know, part of me, like I really enjoy that dynamic. I, I like having a wife. I like having a son. I like that dynamic of, of being in a family and supporting one another. But that's not really I, I'm not really doing that for selfish reasons. I mean, I, I just like them. I like my family, <laughs> you know, and so there is yeah the you definitely have to make the difference and you know from the onset like is this person really doing this you know for selfish reasons probably not like they're probably just doing it you know most kids have you know most most kids are born accidentally 
You know, <laughs> like most people don't plan. That's a huge They're statement. Like, most people don't plan <laughs> like, to have kids. They're like, oh, I'm pregnant. Usually it's me that makes these grandiose <laughs> statements. Like, I'm saying, Ian's like, I'm going to say it right now on the podcast. I'm pretty sure like 99% of kids are just by accident. <laughs> I'm like, pretty sure yep. my son was an accident. I mean, was, I was born was by great. accident. That's not going to yeah. lie. My mom tells me that all yeah. the time. My mom is like, I, you know, my mom said she, she thought she had jet lag. Turns out it was me. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> that would have been a great name. Jet lag Simpson. <laughs> oh my yeah. God. <laughs> well, listen, I know we're going long, but no, I, um, yeah. and, uh, we should probably wrap this up. Um, but is there any, other, any other lingering thoughts? At all that we want to that we want to finish on, or or should we call it? I, I think this has been you know pretty great episode. It's been a fun episode. I, I guess for me, just I just the reason why I feel like I'm I'm fascinated fasc, fascinated about pessimism is just because I do kind of tend to be optimistic, and so uh, it's hard for me to to kind of live in that world or, or sympathize with somebody who's pessimistic. I mean, now I would argue that like I have my moments of, of viewing things more negatively, but I would agree with you that the underlying pinning of what I feel is optimistic. So it's more cynical, I would say. And that's why I kind of break it down to the sense of I'm not overarching as we talked about earlier. I just feel that whether it be how we look at politics or whether it be how we look at our, our just culture in general, especially with being so divided, is that I just have a stronger sense that pessimism is on the rise. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm a little worried about what that means. And so I thought that it would be important to kind of break down certain elements of, of pessimism and, and talk about our own different stuff. And, and obviously we covered a lot of different isms, but it's good because, you know, again, what are we doing in order to understand one, you compare it with something else, you know, and comparing it with something that's kind of opposite and, you know, it's kind of like that. What that famous phrase is, is he's like, you know, define porn. He's like, I don't know. He is. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Right. <laughs> like, well, so it's kind of in that regard of like, if I know what optimism is or if I'm comfortable with optimism, then if I kind of viewing the opposite, then maybe I can identify or try to to understand pessimism. Right. And, and again, you know, the importance of having these conversations is so like when we have uh, further conversations with more in-depth topics, then we can always, you know, go back and refer to these ideas. Um, but I think that's it for me, Josh. Uh, I, this is a great one, folks. Thanks for listening to us. Um, we're really glad that you listen to us every, every episode. Um, thank you. And then, uh, for those, please, you know, obviously I know it's the shtick, but we'll just make it real quick. You, You can like, share, subscribe, you know, we're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Um, I would say this realistically, guys, www.nb, okay, www.necessarybspod.com. You're the one that forgot. Uh, I'm back to our acronym. Well, no, I wouldn't say this though, because we tried to, we tried to get the MBS domain name, but that was already taken. So that's why we had to switch it up a little bit. That's, that's what I keep talking, but it's, it's necessarybspod.com. And uh, there we have links to all of the major platforms. We literally have an episode list layout, you know, ways to support us. Everything is essentially located at the website. There's a, and you know, it's not, there's a mobile version of it and a browser version. So like, it's super simple. Head there if you want to know how to find us and support us. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, don't forget to support us on Patreon like our wonderful patrons do um, who make these uh, episodes uh, even, even better. We love you guys. So. Um yeah. yeah I do. All right guys. Bye. Bye. Uh everything that guy just says bullshit. Thank you.